Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. In the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, American Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Franzak and Thomas. What's happening, Franzak? Oh, I'm just searching in on my pet cube, watching my dog just have a complete conniption fit because I'm gone. We used to have that also. Pitsu used to lose it, like full-blown lose it. For about five minutes in the night, he was like, here, here, here. And then what he would do is like, if there was another dog nearby, he used to do that in public. Uh-huh. So it made it look as if, it's like, you're acting like somebody's beating you. Nobody's beating you <laughs> when you're trying to get away from us. He would lose it at times. And it would be like another dog walking by. He was like, hur, hur, hur. he would flip out. And of course, it's so embarrassing. Now, well, my dog is dramatic in the opposite sense. It's just like, you're leaving me and you're never coming back. And it's like, dude, I'm gone for like three hours. Now, folks, now, you can tell me dog? he's going to be six in January. So he's used to you going and coming back. He's used to me else. leaving and coming back. But here's the one problem is that I've had him since he was a month old. We had to go through the whole service dog training because he sits with kids in the hospital. And so he, when, when you do that training, you have to bring them everywhere. So he's always used to going everywhere with me. Ah, there And I'm it is. one of the people that has the real card that it's a service dog. None of y'all fakers out there. It's my therapy pet. You know what? If, you, if your dog is sitting next to you in the chair at a restaurant or your dog starts barking at other people, it's not a therapy dog or a service dog. Because trust me, you fail in those tests. Those tests are really hard. Yeah. Anyway, besides the point. So that's why when I leave, he gets really bad separation anxiety because he knows everywhere he goes, it's with me. Uh-huh. And I have folks, I have tried CBD oil. I have tried the calming treats. I have tried doggy Xanax. Benny. Doggy Xanax is like throwing darts at a tank. Benny. Yeah, it's nah. Benny is what you use. Um, I can't drug him every day. Oh, bitter drill. <laughs> I, even, I even have a bark collar. He has a bark collar on right now too. Doesn't matter. I- I'll tell you what we used to do for Pitsu and um, Apollo. Apollo is basically a puppy, um, high energy and everything else. And pit bulls have a tendency to have allergy issues, like um, like skin and everything else. So, Benny, every so often, Benny will come into play. Okay, maybe you need a half of Benny to calm yourself down a little bit. I'm not advocating drugging your dog. I'm just <laughs> saying, every so often, Benny, my dog will then be drunk for the rest of his life. <laughs> if that's what you're advocating, because again, Again, I am not advocating drugging your dog. I, I want to state that strongly. The thing is, he's, he's great on planes. He's great in cars. He's great everywhere. It's just that when I am gone for that tiny bit of time. So now what I've been doing is when I get in the car with Jamarl in the morning, I literally have my pet cube on with the mic where he just hears me and Jamarl talking. And then he like calms down. Yeah, he does. And it's just like, I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure you get to work. Whatever. Yeah, he weirdly calms down. Like, he really comes out. It's weird. It's like she's just screaming out. And I'm like, give him a bad. Give him a bad. And it's like, okay, yeah. Tell, <laughs> yeah. But hearing the voice seems to chill him out. It does. It's weird. Well, we've got a cool, we've got a great hour for you folks. Oh, yeah. um, we have Gerald Oliver, um, who is a journalist, author, blogger, and editor at Atlantico. He's in France. Big elections there right now. Um, Emmanuel Macron. Could be could get his croissant overturned. <laughs> we don't know. Um, so we're going to be talking to him about that, as well as kind of everything with Zelensky and, and um, 
um, slamming Merkel and Zarkovsky for denying Ukraine NATO membership. A lot of cool stuff on that. But for now, let's get to some headlines here. In your COVID news, Republican and Democratic negotiators forged a deal on Monday that will direct $10 billion to pay for vaccines, therapeutics, and domestic COVID health responsible response tools, Senator Mitt Romney said in a statement. Quote, we've reached an agreement on a deal to provide $10 billion in funding for urgent COVID needs by repurposing unspent COVID funds primarily from the American Rescue Plan, Romney said on Twitter. The bill won't cost the American people a single additional dollar. This agreement represents only about half of the $22.5 billion President Joe Biden initially requested and is lower than a $15 billion version hammered out by Democratic and Republican leaders negotiated last month. The Chinese authorities announced Tuesday morning that the People's Republic witnessed a significant spike in COVID cases after the country imposed a lockdown in the large city of Shanghai. According to Beijing, the country saw 16,412 new daily coronavirus, coronavirus cases this week, the most since the pandemic began. In your national news, the jury selection process begins for the worst mass shooting in U.S. history, the AP reported Monday. The report says more than 120 of the first 160 prospective jurors who took part in the selection process for the trial of Nicholas Cruz, the person behind the mass shooting at Parkland Parkland Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, were dismissed from the Judge Elizabeth Schurer's courtroom. The primary reason cited for their dismissal was due to their inability to serve on the jury from the months of June through September. The jury will be determined whether or not Cruz will get life in prison or a sentence of death for murdering 17 people at the high school. In other news, it looks like Donald Trump's endorsement of Sarah Palin for U.S. Congress has paid dividends for the former governor of Alaska. According to the odds makers at Betfair, Palin's original odds to win the election were 7-1. to one. However, since Trump's endorsement, the former governor's odds have improved 4-1. to one. Trump's endorsement made headlines Sunday as the former president raved about Palin and praised the candidate for her previous support. He said, Sarah shocked many when he endorsed me, excuse me, when she endorsed me very early in 2016, and we won bigly. Now it's my turn. Trump said in an April 3rd statement, quote, Sarah Palin is tough and smart and will never back down, and I am proud to give her my complete and total endorsement and encourage all Republicans to unite behind this wonderful person. She's so wonderful, so wonderful, and her campaign to put America first. Sacramento police confirmed Monday that authorities made their first arrest in connection to the weekend shooting that left six dead and a dozen others injured. Police chief Kathy Lester revealed that the authorities took into custody 26-year-old Dondre Martin in connection to the Sunday shooting and charged him with assault with a firearm, as well as being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. Martin was not arrested for homicide. In your international news, Kim Yo-jung, the deputy department director of the Publicity and Information Department of the Workers' Party of Korea, said Monday that if South Korea followed through on recent threats of a preemptive strike against North Korea, Pyongyang would reply with nuclear weapons. Quote, In case South Korea opts for military confrontation with us, our nuclear combat force will inevitably have to carry out its duty, Kim said in remarks carried by Korean Civil News Agency. Two referendums may be held in South Ossetia, first on joining Russia, and only after that, a referendum on reunification with Russia's North Ossetia may be held. The republic's president, 
Anatoly Bibilove told Sputnik. According to Bibilove, con consultations with Moscow are currently underway and the referendum may take place after April 10th. He noted, however, that direct entry into Russia and the simultaneous unification of Ossetia will not happen because, quote, this is not allowed by law. The United Kingdom's refusal to hold a UN Security Council meeting requested by Russia on allegations of atrocities in the Ukrainian town of Bucha is unprecedented in UN history, Russian ambassador to the UN Vasily Nebenzia said Monday. This thing that happened, this is something that is unbelievable and unprecedented in the history of the United Nations, Nebenzia said at a press conference on the situation. Holding a meeting would not benefit Western delegations and the anti-Russian narrative that they promote, Nebenzia added. Russia has now requested a Security Council meeting on April 5th at 3 p.m. Eastern time to discuss the Bucha allegations. In your tech news, Truth Social Chief Technology Officer Josh Adams and Billy Boozer, head of the product development, have resigned from their respective roles amid the venture's fumbled rollout and uncertain future, according to an exclusive report from Reuters, citing eight anonymous individuals, quote, with knowledge of Truth Social's activities, the report detailed that Boozer and Adams, described by one individual as the brains behind the app's technology, initially embraced the anti-cancel culture and free speech mission laid out by higher-ups. Another little piece of tech news yesterday, as we know, um, Elon Musk bought 9.2% Twitter shares last night. Late last night, he put out a tweet saying, would you like to have an edit button? So we're going to see how that goes, but big shakeup over at Twitter sphere. In your business news, Hungarian energy company MVM is discussing with Russian energy giant Gazprom the issue of making gas payments in the Russian currency. Russian ambassador to Hungary, Yevgeny Stanislavov, said in an interview with Sputnik. State energy company MVM, which signed a long-term contract with Gazprom Export, is discussing these issues on making these payments in rubles, he said. Oil prices jumped as much as 4%, returning U.S. crude to above 100 bucks per barrel as more Western sanctions planned for Russia, along with news of a hike in Saudi selling prices, helped the market rebound from last week's worst sell-off in two years. Your crazy story of the day. Police in Britain were dealing with a tasty traffic obstruction Monday when a truck lost its load of cookies in a roadway. Police in the Earwash district of Derbyshire, England, said a truck carrying a large load of McVitie's biscuits lost the snack foods in the middle of travel. Police tweeting out, please bear with us this evening while we try and digest this issue. A lorry load of McVitie's finest have decided to abandon ship, causing a slight obstruction. <laughs> Delays were reported in both directions while authorities worked to clear the road. There were no reports of injuries from the spilled biscuits. Your holidays today, National Deep Dish Pizza Day. Folks, in Chicago, there's only one pizza and it's Lumel Nottis. Don't let anybody tell you different. First Contact Day, celebrating all weirdos who love Star Trek like this one over here. National Caramel or Caramel Day potato potato national flash drive day and read a roadmap day so put your google maps aside and read a roadmap and then today in history 
Back in 1994 was Kurt Cobain's death. 1951, the Rosenbergs were sentenced to death for spying for Russia. 1955, Winston Churchill retired as prime minister. And in 1984, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar broke an NBA all-time scoring record. Those are your headlines for Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. Woohoo! Are you big? Were you big? Did you watch the big game last night? What game? Are you serious? Yep. There was a game that took place last night. I told the you, NCAA, I rarely watch national the regular NCAA television. championship game. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't even know it existed. Like, I rarely oh. watch regular television. Usually it's something very specific. Either it's something I, I'm I trying watch to find. it on NCAA.com. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know it existed. I'm not a huge <laughs> sports person, short of, um, short of like me sitting there and just kind of playing. Oh, planning. my goodness. I'm not a huge sports person. So how did it go game up? last night? Yeah. Yes, there was, Jamaro. <laughs> there was a quite a big game. So what happened in the game? But I, I like Green Fane. Nobody cares about the NCAA. I was just saying if you watch the game, just because, you know, it was a big, two big rivalry schools, Kansas yeah. and University of North Carolina. It was big if you like the Chicago Bulls like me. It was Michael Jordan's school versus Kirk Heinrich's Is school. Is that why they had Michael Jordan trending on Twitter? Yes. Okay. Because he went to University of North Carolina. Right. It yeah. wasn't because Famously he said so. a comment on Ukraine or he died. Yeah, I was in, I, I saw <laughs> his name coming up and I was like, okay, why is Michael Jordan trending? Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So who but, won? Um, Kansas won by by a very slow, short margin, but it was it was a great game. I only watched like the last five minutes because I was knee deep in the news, looking at all of these different clips. Yeah. Um, cert, you know, scourging around the internet. Um, which actually I wanted to get to one. Um, I wanted to talk. We talked about. Um, let's let's uh, cue up that Biden on Putin sat. Um, we talked about how Biden has called. Uh. President Putin, a war, a war criminal. And I want you to take a listen to what he said yesterday. This guy, zero shame, doubling down, and also asking about these war crimes in Bucha. Take a listen. One comment to make before I start today. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened in Bucha. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Bucha is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. Up to Allah. No, I think it is a war crime. I'm seeking more sanctions, yes. I'll have time to announce that to you. He should be held accountable. Well, no. No, no. Go, go the, the war crimes up. Yes, I'm going to continue to add sanctions. Thank you. I'll let you know. What other sanctions are you going to add? I mean, how much of a ditch are well, you going to continue to dig? How about the fact that he said they're still investigating, but he's a war criminal? Yeah, that's astonishing, right? There's been zero investigations into this. And if you honestly believe there's going to be a legit, who is going to be this independent arbiter to do that investigation? I mean, think about it for the moment. Russia comes out and says, we want a UN Security Council meeting immediately. The UK is like, yeah, no. What do you mean, no? Now, yesterday, it was interesting. Um, Jackson Hinkle. Oh, shout one out last to my thing. Baby love. Let me add one last thing. U.S. Hague Invasion Act. 
becomes law. Like, that's the astonishing part, right? He's like, he's a war criminal. And if you hear him, he says the Hague or the International Criminal Court. Well, the United States is not even a signatory. Um, a U.S. President George Bush signed into law the American Servicemen Protection Act of 2002, which is intended to intimidate countries that ratify the treaty for the International Criminal Court. The law authorizes the use of military force to liberate any American or citizen of a U.S. allied country being held by the court, which is located in the Hague, dubbed Hague Invasion Clause, has created a strong reaction of U.S. allies. This is a court that is supposed to look at criminal charges, meaning war crimes. The U.S is attacking the criminal court for obvious reasons, right? Iraq. Afghanistan is a signatory to the court um, or to the, to the um, war crime stuff. And so they were looking into war crimes by the United States, in which case this was meant to protect our service members from war crimes. So the idea that, uh, that I was about to call him George Bush, he is incompetent, just like George Bush. The idea that Biden is like, yeah, 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 we need to get the ICC involved. It's just shocking, that's all. I can't even use the term shocking anymore. It's astonishing. That nobody you asked can't him that. You the word astonishing. Yeah. You're going to have to think of two new words. I, I got to find new words. Yeah. But what I was going to say, though, is, is Jackson Hinkle. Shout out to my baby love. I love that kid. Um, he had on Colonel um, McGregor yesterday. Um, and he asked him, you know, who do you think this is? Do you think it's, it's, it's Russia? Do you think it's Ukraine? And he said, you know, right now what they're seeing is these people have these white scarves on their arms, which means neutrality, that they're neither with Russia or Ukraine. Like they don't want to get involved. And it has been widely known in the country that the Azov Battalion has been targeting people that wear these white scarves. However, the one thing that McGregor did say that I was like, this is so true, because he even said, he's like, if I was in there with Trump right now, this is what we would be doing. He was like, the United States needs to bring these two countries together. And, and he even was saying, like, if you bring in, and I've even said this before, too, he goes, if you have the U.S. with Ukraine at the table, bring Russia. And if they want a counterpart, bring Belarus. You come to the table and you figure this out. He's like, and he said, he's like, the fact that Biden is not showing leadership on this, he's like, more people are going to die. He's showing leadership. No, he's showing not. leadership. He's, he's showing the fight to the last dead Ukrainian. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't believe I don't for a moment. I don't consider that leadership. I consider that, um, from, I consider that a, a war criminal. From his standpoint and what he wants to accomplish and what the European leaders want to accomplish, yes, they're willing to put money, weapons and everything else. They're not deviating or backing away from it. Biden has the capability, meaning at any point along this process. You think this guy that can't even tell the difference between a sneeze and a wet fart yeah. is literally is, is, is showing leadership? He is gone. It depends on what you mean by leadership, right? If your objective is, yes, we're going to fight Russia to the last dead Ukrainian, we're going to bleed them white. Then, yeah, from the standpoint of leadership in regards to Europe leading them to hell. Yes, in that sense. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good leadership. I don't even think he knows what's going on. I really don't think he knows what's going on. And you have Jen Psaki. What about Psaki. the gang of idiots in Europe? I mean, like, the darkening economic picture from the standpoint of Europe is astonishing. Well, the here's, of here's why I don't think he knows what's going on. You have everybody jumping ship. You now have yes, Kamala Harris's leaving. deputy chief of staff leaving. She now has a staff of 12 leaving. And I think part of it is because of her. I think it's also they don't want to be tied up in this administration. Yeah. Jen Psaki, she's not even leaving after the whole Ukraine crisis is over because she doesn't want to have to. She can't eat the bull anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I think that he truly he. As far as leading, he is basically a figurehead because all of these neocons are behind him pulling the puppet strings. He is off the reservation. Look, I think this is one of those things like you were talking to Tari. This was something that Biden wanted for a long time. And so I am not shocked at all that these kind of neoconish ideas are being um, um, put out by Biden. And Europe, I mean, my thing is this. They should have known or had enough sense during the first war with George Bush 
that, hey, maybe you shouldn't follow United States to hell in the way that you're willing to do. Those idiots, the gang of idiots in Europe are basically decimating the economic output of their country. They're paying massive amounts for inflation, massive amounts of food, and that is based entirely on geopolitical policy. That is nothing else other than what they've decided to do. And so from the standpoint of leading, again, depends on what you mean by leading, right? Well, and left of most just said the whole Biden being senile thing will be used to keep him from ever being prosecuted like Reagan and his sudden Alzheimer's after leaving office. That's a good point, too. Well, the sad part is from the standpoint of media, they don't even recognize or acknowledge the U.S. culpability or Europe's culpability in creating this conflict in the first place. They don't even acknowledge, per se, that this never had to take place. That Zelensky is saying behind the scenes, oh, yeah, they told me I'll never be a part of NATO. Or that they were trying to get him to basically accept what he is now currently willing to accept. No, it's aggravating that this process is, that this thing is taking place. Well, look, let's take a break. Yeah, you guys so you gotta get to your monologue. <laughs> yeah, you guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Bronzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. And welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm Farron Franzek alongside my co-host, Jamaral Thomas. Jamaral, let's get to it. What is your fault? My fault is getting into the dark, dark, I guess, corners of Ucha. Um, That is the topic that's on everybody's mouth. That is the thing that the West has basically ended up getting itself into a Twitter about. So I guess we have to deal with it directly. Before getting into the Bucha, let's just talk about context, where we are currently. The Ukra- uh, Ukraine has offered concessions. They've offered to limit military in the country itself. They've offered to limit um, or to not be a part of NATO. They've agreed to have a neutral status. They've agreed that foreign troops would not be based in Ukraine. And they've agreed to get Russian permission if there are going to be military exercises with foreign troops. So. On one side, you have a group that is making concessions. I'm making that point to get across that people who are winning a conflict don't tend to make concessions. It tends to be the side that is losing it. So whatever the U.S. media is giving you as a point of view, that is the reality of events. In Marpol, you have reports that Russia or that 99 percent or let's say 95 percent of the country or that city has basically been taken by the Russians. Some reports go higher. Um, They are basically going after the Azov Battalion, which is basically this kind of centerpiece. Of, of that particular city. Um, that seems to be on the brink of collapse at that point from the standpoint of Ukraine. That would be a magnificent loss or stinging defeat um, if such takes place. And again, we're watching that. There's been a repositioning of forces towards the Donbass, which again was one of the key objectives of this conflict in the first place. Now, the New York Times, let's get the butcher. The New York Times comes out, and this is not just the New York Times. Basically, a video came out from Ukraine it's always from Ukraine's point of view. We are talking about the West. And it's basically showing people dead on the streets, some of them with their arms tied behind their back. I just read the New York Times. When images emerged over the weekend of bodies of dead civilians lying on streets in Bucha, some with their hands bound, some with gunshot wounds to the head, Russian Ministry of Defense denied responsibility. In a telegram post on Sunday, the ministry suggested the bodies had been recently placed on the streets after all Russian units had completely withdrawn from Bucha around March 30th. Now, we had Mark Slobodo on yesterday that basically gave the position and explained that from Russia's point of view, that they had already left, that the Ukrainian, let's say, police force comes in after them. And then all of a sudden you get these indications of bodies. They even show the video of the mayor uh, basically not bringing this up, um, that you would think that this would be somewhat of a big issue if indeed these bodies were strong that way. But whatever. 
At this point, we have no idea what's taking place. The New York Times goes and says, buried in the article, of course, the causes of death are unclear. Some of the bodies were beside what appears to be impact craters. Other were abandoned um, by cars. Three of the bodies lay beside bicycles. Some have their hands bound behind their backs with a white cloth. The bodies were scattered all over more than a half a mile of Yablonsky Street. This is dark stuff. Now, the West has basically ran with this and saying Russia is entirely guilty. No, there's been no investigation. No, there's been no independent cooperation of the events that are taking place on the ground. And yes, they've basically taken the Ukrainian military point of view all the way through. And all of the countries at this point of the West are ready to put on sanctions for something that they don't even have a clear understanding of. Now, we have been more right on this show about one topic after the next. We made the point about the conflict and the majority of the conflict being in the East. That is correct. That's also backed up by Western sources at this point. The objective was to destroy or smash the military. Again, that is something that is being acknowledged by various news sources. I mean, you can even go to news. We get the point. We even made the point that the objective to secure Donbass, Kiev, was never the point from the standpoint of a military campaign. We've even given you a contextual understanding of how this conflict took place, why this conflict is taking place. And that is something that the Western media has not done. My point in saying that is, when we are giving you an appraisal of this, we're being honest. We have no idea what is true. My mom called me last night and she was asking me, what is going on? What is going on? Shout and I gave her, Diane. Yeah, I gave her a contextual understanding of the events on the ground. I told her I have no idea what was taking place. What we do know is that there were Russian soldiers that were being tortured, shot in the leg, um, in some cases, a bag over their heads. I mean, very dark, dark stuff that I sat there and basically watched. Now, if other Russian troops saw that, does that inspire them to act and respond in kind? I don't know. From the standpoint of the Ukrainian military, it is existential for them. They are losing this conflict, and this major battle is about to take place in Donbass. If you have a bunch of neo-Nazis that look at Russians as ubermenschen, subhuman beings, and you have this situation where you realize and acknowledge that you are losing a conflict so much so you're running out of weapons, you're running out of gas, fuel, et cetera, et cetera. What do you do to try to get larger forces involved into the conflict? And how far would you go to do it? These are not typical soldiers. These guys are fascists, neo-Nazis in the real and truest sense of the word. You can look at the insignia. You can look at the flag-burning ceremonies. You can look at the things they're doing. It is clear at this point. C-14, Azov Battalion, right sector, et cetera. And these guys have been incorporated into the Ukrainian military. Don't take my word for it. Take Zelensky's. Let's play the clip of Zelensky. Let's skip the clip of Biden. I know I had that one first, but let's go to Zelensky. This is Zelensky on Brett Baer. And he is basically talking about war crimes committed by Ukrainian military. This got scrubbed. It's not going to get scrubbed here. Let's play the clip. Clear something up for us. Uh, and this is these reports about the Azov Battalion that is said to be Nazi-affiliated organization operating as a militia in your country, uh, said to be committing their own atrocities. What should Americans know about that unit, about those reports? So Azov was one of those many battalions. They are what they are. They were defending our country. And later, I want to explain to you. Everything uh, from uh, all the components of those volunteer battalions later uh, were um, incorporated into the, the military of Ukraine. Let's stop right there. <laughs> uh, hey, what about the war crimes 
and the, the, the horrible torture that was taking place with your troops and the Russians. Hey, they are what they are. They've been incorporated into the Ukrainian military. Again, something else that we've already told you. So basically, the neo-Nazis that have been incorporated into the Ukrainian military, will these fascists who look at the ethnic Russian Ukrainians in a particular way? I mean, there have been talks about concentration camp-like items and all. We don't report that in the West. We do report everything that takes place from the standpoint of the Ukrainian point of view. What I'm getting at here is it is unclear what is taking place on the ground. I'll give you another one. Part of my reason for the skepticism on this has to do with stuff that has already taken place, especially in regards to Syria. This is Seymour Hirsch. Seymour Hirsch was the guy that basically broke the Mela massacre. I'll just read it. This was the London Review. They wouldn't even print it in the United States. In months before the attack, this is talking about Syria. Meaning, if you remember, there was this Assad gases people stuff. Now, you had people from the OPCW that were on the ground that basically made a point of saying, hey, this looks staged. And also, why would Assad do this when they've already taken 90-something percent of their territory with the help of the Russian and Iranians, meaning they've stabilized it? What the U.S. would say is Assad is a bad guy. That's the only reason he did it. And without any evidence, attacked the country. Now, when Obama was in office and this issue came up and Obama used that red line statement, Obama, if you remember, at one point, chemical weapon strike. Hey, how convenient is that? The opposition and the people who we were basically backing, these kind of free democratic terrorists that we were basically backing, that we were calling them Democrats in some kind of weird way. Well, whose interest was it to do that? Meaning, if Assad has been cleaning the power like grim death and he knows that the provocation that is necessary is a chemical weapon strike, why would he do that? By the same token, if you're the opposition that is basically trying to take the government down, are you incentivized to basically, let's say, do it yourself or to hoax it. Seymour Hirsch, in three months before the attack, American intelligence agencies produced a series of highly classified reports culminating in a formal operation order, a planning document that precedes a ground invasion citing evidence of Al-Nusra's front. A jihadi group affiliated with Al-Qaeda had mastered the mechanics of creating sarin and was capable of manufacturing it in quantity. When the attack occurred, Al-Nusra should have been a suspect, but the administration cherry-picked intelligence to justify a strike against Assad. You have the OPCW stuff where the Western media completely ignored. You had this notion of what seems to be Americans that were basically trying to intimidate the various members of the OPCW. These people even came out to contest the report that was basically created to back up the Western position. So if you have a situation where there are people on the ground that are about to lose a war, and in the context of losing that war requires more assistance from the West, the West wants more sanctions, and they're looking for a reason and justification to do so, would you either hoax or commit a war crime in order to provoke it? I guess my question is, I don't know. And that's the problem with all of this, right? Sitting on the moon, looking at events, what's more likely to be true in this very specific, specific situation? You need an investigation. And the unfortunate aspect of this is, who's going to do it? Who is going to be the independent arbiter that goes to the ground and makes a choice? knowing? The way that the Western media has reported on this war and this conflict, it is not something that you can basically accept. And of course, from the Russian position, the West will never accept what they give. What's true? And unfortunately, I have no idea. Baron, this is a dark, dark story. And like I said, I, I am very skeptical of the Western position coming out of this. I am very skeptical of what Ukraine is saying in this. By the same token, I don't particularly know. And even the New York Times buried in the article makes the point that they don't know either. Um, so 
look, we need an investigation, right? And unfortunately. But I think the other thing that needs to be said, though, too, um, you know, I think Russia needs to get a little bit smarter on a lot of this. You know, Russia needs to, they, I mean, they basically implicated themselves by not having any proof or anything like this. Ukraine is winning the social media oh, game. absolutely. And I think that Russia needs to start, you know, upping the ante as far as their social media game or or just their public PR. Um, I know, for example, that, you know, for at least from what I've, I've experienced, um, that PR is kind of not something that's usually um, put at the forefront and stuff, stuff like this yeah. when it comes to the Russian side. Um, and I think that they need to start um, getting a little bit more. Now, how would they I, do that in the United States? And because that's the catch, right? It's like, how do you, when you have a media narrative where Twitter doesn't allow it, Facebook doesn't allow the position. The U.S. media doesn't allow the position. And that's where I think, and that's a good point when it comes to the West. Um, and maybe that, and, and may, you might be ex- absolutely right, is that they're being censored. So their their whole standpoint is completely out of the norm. Yeah. However, I will say, I think with with this whole thing with Bucha, um, it is, it does need to be investigated. Um, Russia has come out saying that they they denounced this, what have you. Um, both sides are saying that they haven't done it. Right. Um, and no matter what side investigates, it's going to come out in their favor. Um, so I think you're basically at a, a Mexican standoff. Um, but the one thing I will say, though, is I think that Russia needs to start documenting their stuff a hell of a lot more just so they don't run into stuff like this, you know? And I think that... Um, I'm sorry, every incident in the world leads the Ukrainian military to try to create some provocation to get the West involved. Meaning, if you're losing, how do you win it? And from their standpoint... Yes, they want more weapons. Yes, they yeah, want more tanks. Yeah, let's create a false flag. Exactly. Like there's, this, there's the whole idea of a chemical attack that they said that possibly happened in the Donbass region. Exactly. They're saying there's no way it could have been the Russians because of the way the downhill was going and how it was going to be going into the people of Donbass. And they're like, it's most likely Ukrainian. We don't know. It's right. a war. Yeah. You know, but again, right now, Ukraine is leading the the propaganda war because, again, it hasn't been censored. Yes. And mind you, while RT and everything else has been censored here, um, Ukraine over there, it's the same thing. Zelensky is censoring people. The U.S. is censoring people. Eliminating political parties. You know, yeah. Stuff. So I think it's just, you know, with all these people, when they immediately come out and they have this visceral reaction of, it was Russia, it was Russia. I think that's very dangerous. Yes. Because again, you saw, remember Hanoi Jane, Jane Fonda, when she went down to Vietnam and the whole Hanoi Jane and how horrible she was and how she was anti-American. And then there was the whole Pentagon papers that came out and all the stuff exposing the Agent Orange and all this other stuff that we were doing to these poor people over in Vietnam. Nobody is perfect here, folks. Nobody. And I think people need to stop acting like they're perfect. Like we said in the car, hypocrisy in all of this, the hypocrisy is so thick. Yeah, so thick. And again, for the United States to act like we need to take Russia for war crimes. Okay, then let's go back to Iraq, Afghanistan. That would have then opened the whole can of worms on Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. And that's the thing is that they don't, they don't want, pay no attention of what's what we've done. And that's the whole whataboutism. You can do something crappy and I can call you out for it. However, if you call me out for doing something crappy, that's whataboutism. And that's the part that just gets so annoying in all this. And again, with the war, it's going to be messy. Yeah. First casualty of war is truth. You hear everybody, oh yeah, the first casualty of war is truth. No, it really is. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, all of it. And again, you can't have these visceral reactions until things 
are done, investigated. And then at the same time, you got to investigate the investigators yeah. too. Exactly. And you know? Because like I said, some of this stuff doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay, yeah. All I'm saying is the West has reported in a very specific way. And I would say before you jump to conclusions where all of these guys are basically Russian direct. Uh-huh. Okay. Does the Ukrainian military and some of these neo-Nazis, A, have an incentive to stage something like this? The answer is yes. Just be honest. Does it mean they did it? No. Does it mean they have an incentive? Yes. At this and point, nobody, nobody on any side is equal. Exactly. But let's take a quick break because we want to get to our guest, a new guest, Gerald Oliver. We'll see you back here in two minutes. Rumble.com slash fault lines. Rumble.com slash fault lines. 347 in the chat. Share with your mama, your baby, your auntie, your uncle, your cat, your dog, your hamster, everybody. We'll see you back in two. Fault lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys live in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And I'm going to go straight to our guests because we're running a little bit late. Um, we have Gerald Oliver. He is a journalist, author, blogger, and editor at The Atlantico. Gerald, thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm doing great. It's afternoon here, though, but thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you joining us. Um, so let's do this. Let's jump into France, since that's where you are. Um, Macron is calling for sanctions, basically Europe in general. And he is basically saying he wants to ban on Russian oil and coal after the quote-unquote killings or whatever basically took place in Bucha. Well, this seems, for one, it's conspicuously not gas. There's that point. Um, and also, it belies the fact that Europe is having this severe economic crisis at this point that's only getting worse, where these guys seem to be doubling down on it in spite of the damage, meaning, what, 10% inflation in um, many of the European countries, not to mention rises, increases, gas costs, food costs, etc. What is your take on this? I mean, like, what is, what is going on in France? And what is the perspective of the Europe? especially in regards to the economic situation in context of the sanctions that these guys are continuously trying to push? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, what you have to look at uh, and understand that uh, the war itself was uh, a game changer. Uh, and uh, it was a major disappointment beside the tragedy, besides the fighting, uh, because um, it, it, it told uh, European leaders, Macron among others, but especially uh, German leaders, uh, it told them that they'd been wrong for the past 20 years. Uh, what you have to understand, and even 30 years, what you have to understand from a European perspective is that from the end of the Cold War on, the purpose of anybody's policy has always been to include Russia into a new European hold, uh, economically speaking, and even strategically speaking. And uh, the, the German bet, the German bet with Russian gas was not just a way for uh, Germany to get uh, cheap energy, reliable energy, 
and allow it to go into its own uh, energy transition, as we call it here, it was a way to prove that Russia was no longer a hostile power from a European perspective, and that you could deal with Russia uh, on an um, equal partnership kind of basis. And uh, the Germans, especially much more than the French, the French have nuclear energy that covers 70% of its energy needs when it comes to electricity and is far less dependent on Russian gas or Russian oil than other European countries such as Germany. So the idea behind uh, uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, specifically was to show that A, you could rely on Russia for energy supply, B, you could deal with Russia as a normal country no longer uh, from a mostly hostile perspective. And one is to look and consider that uh, 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 Russia's move against Ukraine was a major strategic mistake behind and beyond the human tragedy, uh, Russia lost all trust, the trust that other European nations had tried to build over time. And this trust will be the hardest thing to rebuild, whatever the outcome of the current conflict is. But, but Gerald, when Macron is calling for new sanctions against Russia, he is just taking stock of whatever has happened after and since February 24th. And unfortunately, it's not in Russia's favor, whatever the economic cost is. And let's be honest, the economic cost here uh, is nothing as compared to the human cost actually happening uh, right now in Ukraine. I get that. I do get that. But doesn't it go both ways? Meaning this notion that there's a break in trust from the standpoint of Europe to Russia. Hey, that goes both ways. I mean, look, you can deal with Russia as a normal country as long as you acknowledge their security concerns. And the truth is, it was completely ignored. Not just completely ignored, even now, when they were basically saying, look, you guys are surrounding us. That's an issue. I'm not, I'm not sure. You have, to, you have to look at it again. I'm, I'm sorry to, to cut in so quickly. But I, I understand your point, and, and it's been put forward, and I think that point should be uh, uh, explored uh, in depth, because uh, on, on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, people have been very quick to dismiss uh, Russia's legitimate security concerns. Yes, I agree on that. But if you look at NATO's action, and not just NATO, but uh, European Union's actions um, ever since the end uh, of the Cold War, um, you could see that there were many forums trying to uh, include Russia into a strategic dialogue and partnership. There was the Partnership for Peace. There was such a thing called as the Russian NATO Council. There were regular meetings. There are even instances across the world where NATO and Russia are cooperating, and that's against um, drug trafficking and terrorism. And now, so the claim that NATO was trying to encircle Russia does not really hold. You, you only have to look at the map. Uh, uh, Russia has about not even a thousand miles, less than a thousand miles of a border with NATO country. Total border of Russia is over 16,000 miles. So you have like one tenth of your border uh, are with hostile countries in a way uh, that's not encirclement. Let me ask you this. With the United, let me ask you this. 
would the United States tolerate, let's say, Russia <laughs> throwing over the government of Mexico in order to put in troops, weapons, et cetera? Would the U.S. tolerate that? No, bro. Uh, then why should Russia not. tolerate it? That's kind of the point that I'm getting at. Meaning, whether because, it's a circle... Okay, when, when was the, uh, okay, when was the last time that the, uh, the U.S. Um, uh, invaded Mexico? Oh, I didn't say uh, the, the U.S. Spanish, invaded Mexico. The Spanish-American when did the the Spanish -American war? Deal? When did they last make a deal to take over its government, not just economically through, through influence, but the context of the Cold War is something that you cannot ignore. And and like you, you keep asking and, and wanting people to look at it both ways. And yes, you do have to look at it both ways. And, and what happened is there was at a time something called the Warsaw Pact, uh, uh, and that military alliance was dissolved when the uh, Soviet Union imploded. And those former countries that were former Soviet Republic or Soviet satellite became independent countries. And an independent country should be free to lead its own independent foreign policy, which includes its joining any alliance it so wishes. And that is not a declaration of war against its neighbor. And it may be seen and as it was uh, a way to protect itself from its neighbor. And here, the real question now, and, and, I, and I invite you to, to, to think of that one very, very closely, because I think the heart of our problem is right there, is uh, what was uh, uh, Russia's, and I will say Vladimir Putin's as much as they will say Russia, what was Vladimir Putin's real intention uh, when he uh, attacked Ukraine? And I think this, this point is undebatable that the aggressor here the current aggressor is Vladimir Putin's Russia. Everybody uh, interpreted as a way to prevent a NATO expansion. I don't think it's the case. I don't think that's what we're dealing with here. And most and most most Europeans are beginning to look at this issue from a different perspective. The real issue was to bring Ukraine back under the Russian mold. And the idea is that there is such a thing as a Russian people that was once united and which is now present in many countries, including Moldova, including Georgia, including the Baltic states. And uh, in all those states now uh, are no longer part of Russia. Uh, they are independent state. And the idea, uh, Putin's real idea is to rebuild the Russian empire of the late 19th century. That means Ukraine is only one step. And uh, Europe is looking at it from that point of view. NATO is only a pretext here. It is not the actual reason behind the war. There is something else going on. So, Gerald, what do you think was it that had you said, you know, Europeans are looking at this differently. We know yesterday these atrocities that happened in Bucha, they're being investigated. We don't know which side actually did it. One side says it's the other. And that's basically at a Mexican standoff as far as who's going to say they did it. But what was it that made Europeans now start looking at this differently, do you think? Was it Bucha? No, no, it wasn't Bucha. Uh, I, I, uh, no, it, it, it changed before. Uh, it was it was uh, Vladimir Putin's deliberate decision to use military force to impose his will on Ukraine. That broke the game. You see, the understanding between Russia and, and, and Europe for those past 30 years has been that you could deal with Russia as a normal country, meaning in a country that would not lead a war of choice 
for uh, a simple, ambitious uh, or strategic reason. Uh, and uh, the idea, actually, uh, NATO and European countries were very much concerned with preserving and in some ways respecting uh, Russia's uh, former sphere of influence and security needs. Uh, if you recall the, the so-called, uh, it wasn't so-called, but the summit, the, 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 the now famous 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, where a membership in NATO was promised. It was promised to Georgia, it was promised to Ukraine, but it was not given. And it was not even, the negotiations were not really implemented. It was simply a way to reassure both sides. On one side, we were, NATO and Europe were telling Georgia and Ukraine, yes, you have, a, 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 shall I say, a, a, a justification in eventually becoming NATO members. But we're not going to do it now because we don't want to do anything that might be interpreted as provocation from the Russian side. And that was a way actually to take into account, to take into stock Russia's security needs. The reality of 2008 is that negotiations should have begun right then to include Ukraine and Georgia. And they didn't. And they didn't as a way to, to keep Russia within uh, we shall say, uh, uh, um, talk, uh, talking level. And the idea had always been that we are not going to be the aggressor towards the other side. And that kind of unwritten agreement has been broken on February 24th when Russian forces invaded. And that was the reason for the wake-up call in Germany. And that was the reason for Macron all of a sudden no longer trying to negotiate a peace deal, but um, act towards punishing Russia for what it had done, going back uh, um, uh, dozens of years in terms of uh, strategic thinking. The brick Bucha is, is a terrible, horrible, undescribable tragedy of war, but it's not the turning point. It's not, it's not the game changer. The game changer intervened earlier. I want to pivot and, and ask you this because what you're saying is very interesting, but there's also another side to this. So you have over over the weekend, you had Viktor Orban, who want re or who was reelected as the president of Hungary, who has now said about paying in, for gas in Russian rubles and has kind of not given his allegiance to Russia, but has said, hey, we're going to work with Russia. You have the same with Serbia. Now you have Marie Le Pen, who is a far right presidential candidate in France, whose campaign, who, mind you, two days ago, she said, and I quote, that Putin could become an ally to France again. Well, that was two days ago. Now you have her campaign gaining traction, receiving 48.5% of voter intentions in an opinion poll regarding a potential runoff versus Emmanuel Macron the highest score she's ever received. So my question is, is if Europeans are looking at this and saying, no, 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 now, now Russia has gone too far, yet you're starting to see a movement of leaders where they're becoming a little bit more nationalistic and saying we need to get along with Russia because they're our neighbors. Where, is, where am I missing that with what Europeans, with what you're saying versus what a lot of these polls are saying? No, you're absolutely right about the polls. You're absolutely right about the election and its meaning. There are two sides to the issue. And the other side is that uh, nations of Europe 
are still nations, and there is a very strong nationalistic sentiment. And that sentiment is strong in Hungary. It has been strong in Hungary, and it has been showing uh, for for some years already. As you know, there's a presidential election in France this coming weekend. It will be the, the first round of, of two ballots. Uh, and yes, Marine Le Pen uh, is the leading challenger to President Macron. And uh, Eric Zemmour uh, is another challenger from the right. And everybody will be looking at the scores of those three people. Uh, everyone expects Macron to come ahead. Uh, but the strengths of the opposition is something that people are definitely looking at. And it is true that in the past month, uh, first Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, uh, who are both, who have both mentioned the fact that um, Russia is a contender that should be listened to uh, and is not necessarily a, a, a hostile country, uh, both saw their numbers in the polls go down initially. And then they've come back up uh, in the past few days when people have paid more attention and, and realized that there were actually two narratives or two sides to look at this country. But where what I was saying earlier and what you're saying now come together is when you look at European countries as individual nation and there is such a thing as a national sentiment. It is that same sentiment which is actually playing in Ukraine. And it is what Vladimir Putin totally overlooked. He thought that uh, most Ukrainians would embrace uh, Russians coming back uh, in Kiev and elsewhere. And it wasn't the case, because in the past 30 years, those nations have developed an independent thinking. They want to be allowed to think for themselves, whether they are Ukrainians or Hungarians or Lithuanians or Estonians or even French, as we will see it um, uh, down Sunday. However, they also want to live in peace. They want to live in peace and they want to live in trust with their neighbors. So then they, they neither want an American power that tells them, I'm going to put my army in your country so as to protect you because you have an aggressor next to you. Uh, and they don't want that potential aggressor to act aggressively. That's the whole problem. Uh, 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 most European nations would be uh, uh, um, very satisfied with living without NATO. Live, listen to me, li living without NATO. Well, and then that's to my next question, because you remember, you remember back, back in 2003, when the United States decided to invade Iraq, and France was very, very much against the invasion of Iraq. In fact, we renamed our French fries Freedom Fries, because you guys went against us. I say us, meaning the United States. And you have now, and, and mind you, that was little Iraq, okay? Iraq wasn't part of NATO. They weren't threatening anybody. France was against it. This is now Russia. Let's, you know, we remember World War II. As they always say, France would be speaking German if it weren't for the United States or, or, the, or the Russians, you know, they're one big joke. Um, but this, the fact that this is now Russia, is it because... Why do you think is that France all of a sudden is siding with the United States when before, when the United States was behind the whole invasion of Iraq, it's it's widely known the United States is behind this whole thing in Ukraine. Is it because it's Russia and it's a it's a it's a nuclear power and it's not a little country like Iraq and France 
doesn't give enough money as the United States does, and they're almost kind of a puppet to the United States? Is it because Emmanuel Macron doesn't have a spine, whereas Marie Le Pen, according to some of these polls, it seems like she does? Why is it that the that France all of a sudden decided to turn and 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 side with the United States when just months ago France and Germany were asking Zelensky, "You need to come out and say that you're going to be neutral," and then all of a sudden taking this complete pivot? Yeah, no, uh, it's not because it's Russia. Uh, it is because uh, it's Europe, uh, and uh, a war can uh, always expand. Uh, you know, you referred to uh, uh, Iraq. Uh, the, the France's position uh, regarding the, the the war in Iraq was that their intelligence services were telling them that the U.S. intelligence services were lying about WMDs, uh, and since no one else was willing to to confront that lie, uh, they went in openly and said, "No, we're not in together because we're not we're not believing in that in that in that lie." Okay, I'm not sure could that this be another could this be another lie though too with the United States behind it? I mean the United States has lied once before. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate with you. Who says the United States isn't lying about this one? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put I wouldn't put the US in in other words, Ukraine is not manipulated by the US. That's one thing that that Ukraine uh, is not Ukraine manipulated is by the US in, in its own. It is held by the U.S. It has been uh, trained militarily uh, by Americans uh, lately, especially since 2004. It has benefited for, from, uh, Europe, from um, European and American assistance. But the idea that the U.S. is pulling the strings in Ukraine is, is a false idea. That's what I mean by nationalistic sentiment. In 30 years, in 30 years, uh, a Ukraine nation has emerged. That's something that Vladimir Putin didn't take into account. Now, to go back to Macron's position, the position is now that uh, Europe is much closer to the theater of war than the U.S. are. Very true. Okay? Uh, uh, and the fact is, if you look further back, uh, World War One started Gerald, when someone was assassinated back in Sarajevo. Gerald, uh, I'm sorry. We're going to have to cut yeah, in. Gerald, we're coming to a hard we, break. We thank you so much because we, we, like, we like differing opinions. We bring everybody on the show and we're going to get you back to and we're going to give you more time because we ran over today. Gerald Oliveri is a journalist, author, blogger, editor at Lanico. Gerald, love the conversation. Glad to have you. Again, we're getting you back. Folks, you're listening to Fault Lines, rebel.com slash Fault Lines. Back in two minutes. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamarl Thomas. And in the ladies corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I am your ever polite pierogi princess, your journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Great conversation with Gerald. Can't, couldn't agree with him, couldn't disagree with him more. But you um, know what? But I, I, think love having, the fact, I think having those conversations. I love that conversation. And having, but like I said, I just don't like the no, no on camera. Yeah, I don't you disagree like with me on that, and I disagree with you on it. Um, I have zero issue in kind of shaking my head if I disagree with something that somebody's saying. And especially since it's full well going in line with the conversation that we're basically having. Meaning it's not like I'm saying, yeah, dude, I entirely agree with you. And then it's in the background doing this. 
he clearly knows I disagree with him. If he's watching it, he's going to see a person who's basically disagreeing with him, just like he's disagreeing with him in voice. I'm only saying that in order to be open to conversations, and if somebody's saying that their point of view and you're sitting across the way going like this the whole time, I don't think that's being open to what they're saying. I don't think it's being respectful. Mama Thomas in the chat, you tell me. I'm going to get your mother's opinion Look, on this. I mean, we just disagree. Let back. Disagree. That's not you being right. That's not me being wrong. That's just, I disagree. He and I were having a conversation. I completely disagree with him in that conversation. I think it's somewhat And ludicrous. you can totally disagree, but yeah. I think standing there shaking your head, I don't think that's a good thing. Well, to, whether I think, I'm I doing that verbally or whether I'm doing that visually, same thing. It's consistent. It's consistent. And by the way, that's not indicative of me being not being close to what he's saying. Him and I are literally having a conversation about what he's saying. So, but just disagreement is what it is. People have points of view, right? The chat's kind of 50-50. Yeah. So. It is being honest, but again, I'm just saying. You're a different a, person. Huh? You're a different person. Let's just go with that. You're a different person. We have different points of view. I don't have an issue with it. You do. Different different people. I would imagine oh, there are going to the be things where I'm going to be. you. Huh? The chat's firing back at you. They can fire back at me all they want. <laughs> they can fire back at me all they want. Um, but let's do this. Let's get into the headlines in the news. In COVID news, Republican and Democrat negotiators forged a deal on Monday that would direct $10 billion to pay for vaccines, therapeutics, and domestic COVID health response tools. Senator Mitt Romney says the bill won't cost the American people a single additional dollar. This agreement represents only half of the $22.5 billion President Joe Biden initially requested and is lower than the $15 billion version hammered out last month. Chinese authorities said the People Republic witnessed a significant spike in COVID cases after the country imposed the lockdown in the large city of Shanghai. Beijing reports that the country saw 16,412 new daily coronavirus cases this week, the most since the pandemic began. Oh, God. I hope this is not restarted. What happened? What happened? I just hope that's not restarted. The COVID oh, stuff. Oh, I was like, did I mess something up? In no, 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 no. Oh, I was, I'm by sorry, the I was, way, no, I was by like, the way, that the chat, the chat is actually loving this. They're like, this is now actually fault lines. Yeah. This is fault lines. <laughs> but you know what? I will say, we do respect each other. I would we rather do. not have a fault line on stuff that is specific to us. I would rather have that stuff on topics, but is what it no, is. No, but you know what? Here's the thing. I respect you doing it. Like, if you want to sit there and shake your head, that's totally fine. I'm just, I doesn't seem my way. You know, what, maybe, and here's my thing. Maybe it's because I come from a TV background where oh shoot sorry <laughs> not the, not used to the mic in my face um, I'm usually mic'd up um, it's one of those things where I've been in interviews and there have been times where I've really had to watch my face because I've even had guests say what was the face that she was making at me what was that? <laughs> and, and, that, and that's where I immediately and even my producer Eddie will tell you like guests have even said like why was she making a face at me or whatever? And I don't even see the faces that I'm making, yeah. but like I'll hear something and I'm like, that makes no flipping sense. And I've had to learn to like completely neutralize my face in the sense that the guests don't get angry so that it looks like I'm mocking them yeah. or, you know, that I think they're stupid and it shows up on my face because I'm a very animated person, if you couldn't tell. So that's why when I see it with you, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is against my training. You know, what is it? Um, what is it? Portal Bridge. Portal bridge. <laughs> right. Portal Bridge. <laughs> Portal Bridge. So that's so I think it's so I think it's healthy. Maybe tomorrow will get me up, make me a little more loose. For me, it's, uh, it's, for me, it's radio, right? 
And oftentimes when we're having True. these debates or conversations, yeah, if I disagree, I disagree, right? It's not like I'm lying to the person. I just, yeah. everything just kind of falls in line with how I feel about it. It's like, oh, dude, I so disagree with this. I do want Don't to master the Tucker Carlson's where it's like the pursed lips, like. Yeah, like, I think that's worse. <laughs> and that's, what, that's, I'm, that's worse. what I'm saying, though, is I had to learn to completely neutralize my face when people respond. And if they said something funny, you know, I would laugh or what yeah. have you. But yeah, TV, it's just. It's so different, you yep. know? And that's where, like I said, I see it and it's like, Portal Bridge! Portal Bridge! No, I mean, I I am not saying anything bad to the guy. There's and nothing... I'm not saying if, you're a bad person for yeah, doing it. Yeah, it's there's just, nothing I'm in the not conversation. I'm not used to it. I'm not saying anything, like, sharp to him. It's just a conversation, right? And it, it's just a back and forth. I just disagree with this premise. Um, but open to the conversation completely. And what did I say before we even got here? I was like, hopefully he's pro-NATO. I said that back there, right? Because I love those conversations. I mean, it's one thing to talk to somebody who agrees with you. We were actually told he was not pro NATO. Oh, I didn't know one way or the other. This was like, yeah. wait, what? Oh, no, I, when, when he said that, I was like, yes, let's get into this conversation. But, but I think, I'm though, excited about those again, conversations. Again, though, and it was I, what I think was great about it, though, before I, I cut in your headlines, though, um, I think what was great about it is, is again, asking him, like, wait, where did the European divide start happening? Like, right. what was it? Was it Bucha? Because you are starting to see people flip. And then again, why is it that? Marie Le Pen is doing so good then. Right. And she even said, we should be able to ally with Russia he again. And then her, her uh, scores go up. It's just some of the things he's saying doesn't make sense. He's like, well, NATO basically, Europe brought Russia in by expanding NATO. And I could go back. It's like, then why on earth did they say NATO wouldn't expand one inch? Meaning what he needs to explain to me is how, meaning that Europe fully understood going all the way back to the fall of the Soviet Union that expanding NATO was a no-no. All of them knew it. All of them got it. I could go to William Burns, and that means net. Same thing. You're expanding NATO to the border. This is a red line for Russia. If it is indeed true that Europe was bringing Russia into this, then why did they know that? Meaning now, they I, knew that all the way back. I will say, like, Joe Paluca in the chat saying, format should be one guest. That, like that spew lies, you cut the connection. No. No. Oh, no. God, no. That's, no. You have because the conversation. Because then we are just like everybody else that rips the cord out of the wall and you can't say what you want. No, 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 no. No, you have the fight. What you do is you just, you you take the argument and you just run circles around them until they're finally so tired that they're like, crap, you're probably well, right. Well, my goal was to try to present the contradiction in what he was saying. That basically is like, does Russia have real security guarantees? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, okay, then what does that mean in regards to maintaining? And what does the United States do? I think he said, did U.S. invade Mexico? That's, you're missing the point. What I'm trying to show you is that when the shoe was on the other foot, we were willing to end the world in order for to protect our security guarantees. Even your point about Iraq. Iraq was a national um, security issue. We went into Iraq. Does that mean the United States is not a normal country because of doing so? What about the countries knocked over? Like, it's the level... There is a European perspective that is being enunciated that is just completely and flagrantly ignoring the other side in that conversation. That's all. That's why I said I love that conversation. I would have never disconnected that guy. Him and I could have talked for an hour. Um, I would have enjoyed it. But let's get back to headlines. Yeah. In national news, the jury selection process has begun for Nicholas Cruz, the person behind the mass shooting at Parkland's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. More than 120 of the first 160 prospective jurors were dismissed due to their inability to serve for months from the months of June through September. The jury would determine if Cruz will get life in prison or sentence of death for murdering 17 people. Oh, put a pin in that one. Let's come back to that. Should he get death? It looks like Donald Trump's endorsement of Sarah Palin for U.S. Congress has paid dividends for the former governor of Alaska. 
According to the odds makers at Betfair, Palin's original odds to win the election were 7 to 1. However, since Trump endorsement, the former governor, her odds have improved from 4 to 1. Huh. Trump's endorsement made headlines on Sunday as the former president raved about Palin and praised the candidate for her previous support. Okay, so Trump does have um, powder in his gun. Sacramento police say authorities made the first arrest in connection to the weekend shooting that left six dead and a dozen others injured. 26-year-old Dandry Martin was taken into custody and charged him with assault with a firearm, as well as being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. Martin was not arrested for homicide. In international news, Kim Yo. Uh, Kim Yo-jong of the Workers' Party of Korea says if South Korea followed through with the recent threats of a preemptive strike against North Korea, Pyongyang will reply with nuclear weapons. Quote, in case of South Korea ops for military confrontation with us, our nuclear combat force would inevitably have to carry out its duty, unquote, Kim said in a statement. Is that Kim Jong-un or is that Kim Yo-jong? Who's Kim, Kim Yo-jong. Okay, Workers' Party. Okay. Um, two referendums may be held in South Ossetia. First, ongoing Russia and joining Russia, the second on reunification with Russia's North Ossetia. This told by the Republic's president, Anatolia Bilibov. Anatoly Bibilov. Thank you, Bibilov. Okay, thank you, Bibilov. I'm to Sputnik. Bibilov. Yeah, you even put it phonetics. Phonetics, believe it or not, was throwing me off a little bit. Throw me off. But no, I appreciate the phonetics. You're right, and it's perfectly right, Bibilov. Bibilov said consultations with Moscow were underway and the referendum could happen after April 10th. Okay, that's going to be interesting because that's in Georgia, right? Yeah. All right, see what happens with that. The United Kingdom refusal to hold a UN Security Council meeting requested by Russia on allegations of atrocities in Ukrainian town of Bucha is unprecedented in Europe, um, uh, United Nations history. Russia's ambassador to the UN, Vasily Dibinzia, said... He, he added, holding a meeting would not benefit Western delegations and the anti-Russian narrative that they promote. Russia has now requested a Security Council meeting at 3 p.m. Eastern to discuss the Bucha allegations. Yeah, that is pretty big. And Europe, um, the UK needs to explain why they weren't willing to have that Security Council meeting. That's very strange. Um, in tech news, Truth Social Chief Technology Officer Joss Adams and Billy Boozer, <laughs> great last name, Head of product development have resigned from their respective roles amid ventures' fumbled rollout and uncertain future. A report detailed the Boozer and Adam, described by one individual as the brains behind the app's technology, initially embraced the anti-cancel culture and free speech mission laid out by their higher ups. In Earth and Science news, an unknown creature thought to be an alien washed ashore on the Australian beach recently. According to the publication, the weirdly bloated creature whose head has been defleshed and the body looks more like a swollen, uh, looks more swollen, washed ashore last week and stirred up rumors on social media that the creature was indeed an alien. Russell Bicknell, a marine biologist, told Life Science that he thinks it's either a kangaroo or a wallaby. Interesting. In business news, Hungarian energy company MVM is discussing with Russian energy giant Gazprom the issue of making gas payments in Russian currency. Russian ambassador to Hungary... Yevgeny Stanzilov said in an interview with Sputnik. Oil prices jumped as much as 4%, returning U.S. crude to above $100 a barrel as Western sanctions planned for Russia along the news hike of Saudi Arabia. Selling prices helped the market rebound from last week's worst sell-off in two years. 
Let's get to our crazy story for the day. Police in Britain were dealing with a tasty traffic obstruction on Monday when a truck lost its load of cookies in a roadway. Police tweeted out, quote, Please bear with us this evening while we try and digest this issue. A lorry load of McVite's finest have decided to abandon ship, causing a significant obstruction. Unquote. No reports of injuries from spilled biscuits. In holiday news, we have National Deep Dish Pizza Day. That was parents' thing. First Contact Day. Celebrate all things Star Trek. William Shatner is the greatest man alive. Um, National Caramel Day. National Flash Drive Day. Read a Roadmap Day. All of those undermine the very fact of a Star Trek Day, but okay, let's keep going with that. In today's history, in 1994, we had Kurt Cobain's death. In 1951, Rosenberg sentenced to death for spying. That's an interesting one. In 1955, Winston Churchill retires as prime minister. And in 1984, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar breaks the NBA all-time scoring record. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas. Bronze that was a long list of headlines. I know, right? We're getting longer and longer. But um, coming up after the break, I'm going to be talking about Elon Musk taking, I think he's going to take over Twitter. Folks. You think so? I think he's going to take over Twitter. You think he's going to make it a free speech, though? I think so. He was already asking about an edit button and all that overnight. Yeah. So we'll see. But I do want to take your calls, too, to get your thoughts on it. 202 521 202-521-1320, only on Elon Musk right now at 945. We'll have it where you can talk about everything that you want. But if you got something to say on Elon Musk, uh, give us a call. 202-521-1327. You're listening to Fault Lines. 1320. 1320. I lie. 521-1320. I am not Russian propaganda. 202-521-1320. <laughs> Rumble.com slash fault lines. We're back in two minutes. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And it is that time Special time. I always appreciate this time frame. Baron, Franzak, fault, alliteration. What is your fault for today, Fern? This is Musk Town. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I was looking at all. So you have Elon Musk, for those that have, you know, not been listening to the show. Um, in a filing disclosed Monday, the Tesla CEO bought a 9.2% stake in the company last month, making him Twitter's largest shareholder. After Musk purchased the shares, but before they were disclosed publicly, he tweeted a poll about Twitter and its commitment to free speech. Elon Musk tweeting, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? In a whopping poll, answered by 2 million people, more than 2 million people. Wait, let me guess, let me guess. Okay, go for it. 85% say they don't adhere to the principle. Um, that's a good a good opening guess, but it's a little bit lower than that. Oh, 70%. 70-30. Nailed it. 70-30, which is still Woo! a really big margin. Yeah. 
Um, so you have this happening and you can see, obviously, that there is growing sentiment. You had last year the Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey stepped down. A new C- CEO was put in place where he basically said that we are the arbiters of what speech is to be put out there, which shocked many people. Um, and many people saw Twitter possibly changing. And it started to change, especially in these last couple of months, especially when it came to social issues, in particular revolving around transgender issues. We saw, for example, a couple of weeks back, we had the Babylon Bee that had its account removed because they um, announced Rachel Levine, who is a transgender um, in the Biden administration. They announced her as man of the year, which was, I think, a little bit, eh, you know, but at the same time, free speech, right? Well, Twitter called it hate speech. Thus came in the conversation about, okay, what is actually hate speech versus you hurt my feelings speech? So with that said, Tucker Carlson had a great opening monologue last night about this. And I don't want to, you know, paraphrase or anything. I'm just going to let my man Tucker say it himself. Let's take a quick listen. It's a good day in America, maybe a rare good day. We're going to celebrate no matter what. Here's the context for why it's good. Censorship. Censorship is essentially the hallmark of neoliberalism. Have you noticed that? Our leaders seem to spend a lot more time trying to control what we say and think than trying to improve our country. And that means that anyone who utters the wrong words, even accidentally, gets fired or banned or ostracized or even charged with a crime. We've seen that too. We don't need to give you more examples of it. They are literally everywhere. If you live here, you're deeply familiar with it. But censorship now defines America's public conversation. We spend an awful lot of time complaining about that on this show. We probably don't spend enough time asking, what is this all about? Why are the authorities suddenly so intent on controlling our words? Why are they so afraid of free speech? This is a new thing and the answer is pretty simple. It's an act of self-preservation. If voters were allowed to think for themselves, the entire system would teeter and possibly collapse. Sound like an overstatement? Okay. Consider the ideas that the people in power use to justify their power and their rule over you. Here are some of their slogans, not one of which you're allowed to disagree with. Here they go. America is a racist country. White supremacy is our biggest threat. January 6th was a coup. Ukraine is a vitally important ally. Gender is a social construct. Climate change is an existential crisis. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And so on. These phrases are so common now that you might not even think about them anymore. You hear Biden or Pelosi repeat them for the fifth time in a single day and you just start to go numb. But take a break from the numbness, pause and think about it. Consider each of these slogans on its merit. Are the words actually true? Do they correspond to reality, observed reality? No, they don't. None of them do. And that's, I'm going to end it there. But Tucker then went on to talk about Elon Musk then taking over Twitter. And he said, in part, that the fact that Elon Musk now has the biggest share in Twitter, you're going to have every single Democratic operative looking for a racist tweet, a sexist tweet, any kind of tweet that's going to be a problem at all, like he just said, about all of those things that you've been told to think, whether you believe them or not, whether it's, you know, gender's a social construct, uh, it's a pandemic on the, on the unvaccinated, it's this, all the things that he just listed. Again, whether you believe in those or not, 
Those are the phrases that are being pushed onto you. And God forbid, if you go against any of those phrases, you could possibly get canceled, silenced, shadow banned, what have you. So with all of this being said now, there are going to be Democratic operatives because now all of a sudden Elon Musk is going to be a baby of the right wing. And that's, that's you know, the right wing has always been about free speech. That's always been their big token, you know, of, you know, free speech and don't touch my guns. I totally get it, you know. But the biggest thing with all of this, though, is again, now you have the United States trying to go after all of these Russian oligarchs, right? Going after all these Russian oligarchs, for example, you have this one guy, Mikhail Karakovsky, who, if you haven't seen Citizen K on Amazon Prime, it's a great documentary about a guy who was who wasn't a Russian oligarch, but when the Soviet Union fell, it kind of goes through his life. How he they when the Soviet Union fell, they they handed out all these vouchers to people, and what he did, and this was all supposed to be. Um, You got your voucher and it was, you know, it was basically like cash. And what he was doing is he was offering, you know, innocent poor people like, hey, I'll give you three rubles for your voucher. And the fact that these people of the Soviet Union, they had no idea kind of really what these were. um, They would sell it to him thinking, oh, my gosh, the rubles are worth more when in reality, these vouchers were worth more. And this guy ended up buying many of these oil companies from the state that were owned by Russia for next to nothing. And thus came in this privatization and capitalism in Russia. And you then created these oligarchs. And it was a very crazy time. And this documentary goes through all of it. But basically, he was charged with embezzlement, tax fraud, what have you. Pretty much what all of the oligarchs here in the United States should be charged with. Because when Putin came in, he said, no, 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 no. You either have one choice. You either are a businessman or you're a politician, but they're not mixing. Karakovsky started to mix it, and he started to wind into financial problems and a bunch of other things. Um, There was also reports where when he was going after one town um, for their oil company, the people kind of got mad and revolted, and the mayor kind of stood up for his people. All of a sudden, the mayor winds up dead. You know, it was, it's a very convoluted story, but in a sense, this guy goes away to prison for 10 years in Russia and now is, is, I want to say exiled, but he knows he really can't go back to Russia. Now he's a West Wing talking point. And now he's coming out for the West of, I know Putin and I know what he's going to do in free speech and blah, 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 blah. And I say to that, okay, what about what's happening here? Well, now you have American oligarchs Or at least Elon Musk could be that one oligarch in the coal mine saying, you know what? I'm kind of tired of all this. I'm tired of all of these people saying, I can't do this. I can't say that. The one difference that I think that's interesting with Elon Musk, he grew up in South Africa. He grew up in South Africa. Many people think he's American. He's not American. He grew up in South Africa. He then, his mother was a Canadian citizen. He then went to school for a bit in Canada and then immigrated into the United States. So this guy wasn't indoctrinated with war is good, war is good, we need it, and the military-industrial complex and all that. He wasn't indoctrinated in all that. And he's seeing very much, I think, well above what our congressmen are seeing. He's seeing it as a big picture, whereas the congressmen are seeing what money can I get from my next lobbyist. And so when you have Elon Musk, who has 
who wipes his butt with dollar bills. Or he could if he wanted to. When he starts saying, you know what? Let's change the game. And remember, Jack Dorsey said not too long ago over the weekend that he regrets centralizing the internet because it was all about making money for these shareholders. And then it started to flip. Well, I think Elon Musk could be that one American oligarch that changes the game. In opposition of the United States, in opposition of many of these against the insiders for the outsiders, mainly because I think Elon Musk is an outsider. He's not from the United States. He wasn't, he didn't grow up with our values, you know, of freedom, go carpet bomb him if they don't want to do what you want to do. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting to watch this all unfold and see what he does with Twitter. Last night he did a whole, and the other thing that's, that's interesting too is now that he has almost 10% of the company, he's asking people, what do you want from Twitter? You know, like for example, do you think Twitter's about free speech? 70% across the, no, no. He's asking, do you want an edit button? Yep. Many people on Twitter don't want an edit button because they like the fact that you can't edit it and that you can call people out for deleting stuff instead of going back and editing it, which I actually agree with. I think if you say it, you know, and, and like Taylor Lorenz, you know, where she would tweet stuff out and then she would get, you know, she would get called out. She'd delete it and then put her account private. People, <laughs> people watch that stuff. And that's why I think it's good. No, you're right. I like you it. Know what Not I mean? having an edit button. Yeah, exactly. think about it. Because yeah, at first I, I was it. like, yeah, I can have the I can edit button for misspellings. Yeah. But think of the bigger but, picture. Right, the more I think about it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and that's what I think Elon Musk is doing is he's now looking at the bigger picture of all of this. Um, Elon Musk is not is not an outsider. I'm not saying he's an outsider in the sense of he's not rich like the insiders. What I'm saying is, is I think he comes from a different set of values when it comes to American ideology that we've been ingrained in our entire lives. And again, I think, I think Elon could change the game. I really think he might be able to change the game. If anything, put a lot of these congressmen, these lobbyists, the big tech, especially in check while, while, Jeff Bezos was up shooting his, his, his penis rocket in the sky. Amazon was unionizing, okay? He is not, he's not an outsider. He is very much on the inside. But you see, he's not, he's not, you know, he, he's trying to do the Washington Post and all that. But Elon Musk going straight for the jugular of big tech and buying shares in Twitter. I don't see Jeff Bezos doing that. It could change the game. That's just... And I'm not saying I'm pro Elon Musk or against Elon Musk because I know that there's controversies about whether he was for the jab or not. All I'm saying is I think he's going to change the game and literally do a checkmate on big tech as far as, hey, I'm rich, honey. I'll buy you out. Because he was talking about starting his own social media platform. Now he's like, I just buy yours. Yeah, I just buy yours. Um, Look, I agree with you on this to a point, I think. So there are a few things. Tucker Carlson is right. Completely so. That it's, we require on some level this to stop people from thinking from themselves. Meaning television, radio, those are disruptive technologies. At the point where you can capture it, where you basically have a very confined point of view. Yeah, you may have CNN, you may have Fox News, you may have MSNBC, but you're basically stuck between those boundaries in regards to the politics that you can think of and discuss. And so having something like the internet and all of these points of view, it's disruptive. 
And so their ability to basically limit various things that come out with this, the New York Post article, where it is anything that's coming out with a perspective that you don't particularly like from the standpoint of the United States, meaning the way they would eliminate Telesur, the way they would eliminate the Palestinian perspective, they want to win in a heartbeat. And so the fact that Elon Musk comes out and says, hey, you know what? Free speech matters. And the interesting thing, the only thing I think I disagree with it is our values. I mean, fact of the matter is the First Amendment is the First Amendment. <laughs> like, it's there for a reason. This ability to have a conversation and discuss. And there are going to be things that come up in your society that will be disagreed by from the power structure. But I think Elon Musk has talked more about free speech. Yes. Than any of people in Congress right And that's now. my point. I mean, the people in Congress are very specific to this notion of limiting what comes out in regards to dialogue, especially if it's going to adversely affect them. If you remember, when Donald Trump won, what did they do? They attacked social media, meaning they went after Twitter. They went after Facebook. They dragged all of them to Congress in order to kind of just browbeat them. It's like, hey, you need to get rid of more content. You need to censor more content. It was basically that. And so from the standpoint of Twitter and social media, basically responded to it. And so Elon Musk coming out basically saying, look, how do you have a democracy when you don't have the capacity to have discussions, especially uncomfortable discussions, discussions you may not necessarily want to have, discussions that may fly in the face of the power structure and the things that that power structure would like you to discuss? If Ukraine is not an example of that, I don't know what is. So him coming out basically saying, yeah, I am rich beyond all measure. And I'm just going to buy it. And from here on out, I think this should be a free space zone. Applause. Applause. Not a huge fan of Elon Musk. Love this move. Because at the end of the day, you have this. Oftentimes, they would say your comments. Twitter, Facebook, those things are comments. We don't have town criers where you just get out there and stand and scream. People do that, but those people are looked, you know, frowned upon in regards to the way society. You crazy. Yeah, right. That guy's (laughs) nuts. It's something else, though, when you have these kind of social media platforms and their capability of basically limiting what people can say on those platforms. I love the fact that he's basically saying, look, I am a free speech absolutist. I think it is something required, not a bug, a feature of democracy. And if we're going to have these platforms like that, yeah, maybe some of these platforms should be free speech zones. Love it. And again, for many of you in the chat, I see, you know, where you're, you're talking about it, you know, where you're like, you know, oh, Elon, you know, he talked, he joked about overthrowing governments. Yeah, well, the United States actually did it. You know, like, I mean, yeah. and maybe that's where he sees it. At least he's the only person that I'm seeing that's talking about overthrowing government. By the way, this is not that a person is great as an absolute. I mean, yeah. if you get me in a bad moment, I'm going to be in a bad moment. Uh, this is something very specific that he is doing that you either approve of or disapprove of. And his rationale for it is Twitter. Look, all of you who are out there have complained about Twitter and censorship mm-hmm. on Twitter. He is basically whatever you think of Elon Musk, whatever you think of him, he could. Touch He's the Don Quixote riding in to save it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or, or not the Don Quixote because he was broke as hell. But I know um. what you mean. <laughs> Basically, he's coming in and is putting his finger in the um in the in the crack in the wall in regards to you can't have a democracy without free speech. Now, one can't. of the things that has been rolling around the Twitter sphere too, with all of this with Elon, is letting Trump come back on Twitter. He should. Mm-hmm. He should have never been removed. Along with Alex Jones. Alex Jones should have never been removed from YouTube either. So, I mean, look, you can say what you will. You can take them in lawsuits. You can have at it, but you shouldn't move. There is something dramatically problematic with this idea of, I don't like your point of view, so I'm just going to eliminate your point of view. I, ah, what if that point of view just so happens to be right? I'm not talking about the gay frog stuff. I'm talking about, and, and yeah, my mind specifically is on Ukraine right now just because it seems like we're in this weird twilight zone. But this notion of, hey, maybe in order to prevent war, 
You need to be able to articulate a point of view that may run afoul of the power structure. It's that. And it's like, if you can't do that, that's a problem. How do you have a democracy if you can't have those arguments, those points of view? Now, Shakedown Street, Farron, this is not a good look for you trying to get a date with Elon. Um, (laughs) No offense. Not interested. Not interested. Um, I think the guy's a genius, but I saw him on SNL and I was like, little awkward. awkward. I get it. But you know what? I give him a thousand percent. He has Asperger's and he's like, I'm the first one to come out here. And and again, he's going to be socially awkward because of Asperger's and whatnot. But even even beyond that, he's just not my type. You know, it's just not my type. I like nerds, but not too nerdy. Um, But no, but here's the thing. Y'all are falling hook, line and sinker. This is not a falling hook, line and sinker. I'll tell you why I'm falling hook, line and sinker. If that's what you think that I'm doing. I just had my TV network shut down. That's right. So when I see a guy come out and says, you know what? I don't care who you work for or what you're going to say. I'm going to give you that voice. Yeah, I'm going to fall for a hook, line, and sinker because I've had it happen to me. And again, it's very specific to what we're talking about. You're at, mm-hmm. Like this notion that just because we're saying, hey, I like this move that Elon Musk is trying to make Twitter a free speech zone. That doesn't mean that you love Elon Musk as an absolute. It yeah. just means that in no. a very specific activity of what he is doing, I think it is a positive, not just for Twitter, but for democracy. Yeah. Democracy itself. Yeah. And if he's talking about bringing back Donald Trump, if he's talking about bringing back Alex Jones, who was that canary in the coal mine yep. of losing free speech, what is so bad about that? Why am I Why am I all of a sudden now defending Elon Musk for every little thing? That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying, I think, with him talking about, hey, if you can't beat him, join him. <laughs> and that, it, it, but his is more, if you can't beat him, buy him. <laughs> right, right. You know? And I think it's interesting. And I think, honestly, he's got the cojones. He's doing it. He's asking questions. It's the first that I've seen since a guy like a Jimmy Dore, a Russell Brand, where they're going to get flack. And that's the thing. Tucker said, you got every single Democratic operative now. They're going to look up a racist tweet, what he said, his stance on COVID, what he's done with women, what he's done with his kids, how he feels about, you know, social issues, how he's tried to overthrow governments or or joked about it. They're going to come for the gauntlet with this guy. And first of all, I don't think he cares. The test will be to see if he does remove people for making fun of SpaceX or anything. (laughs) Right. But that will be the (laughs) test. However... Just do not let that fog fade, uh, I guess, kind of deter you because they're going to try to annihilate this guy strictly because even just mentioning Donald Trump and Twitter in the same sentence. Oh, man, you thought 2016 was bad. If Elon Musk gets in there, brings Donald Trump back on. It's World War Three. <laughs> I'm just it's World War Three. <laughs> Fault lines. Thomas. Franzak. And yeah, Elon Musk. We'll see. We'll we'll ask Ed Martin's talk on it too. We're also going to be talking Hunter Biden, but we'll ask Ed Martin on it too. Yeah, see what his take on it. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas and Franzak. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, 
You can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us you know a like are. and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And we were having this conversation about basically free speech zones and Elon Musk taking a pretty big share, I think 10% of Twitter, and basically asking people, hey, what is the Twitter that you want, specifically around this notion of free speech? To have a conversation about this, in addition to the Hunter Biden items that have come up, always something about Hunter Biden, we're joined with Ed Martin. Ed Martin is president of Facilis, I'm sorry, yeah, Facilis Schaffly Eagles. Phyllis Schaefly and Eagles. Thank you, Schaefly Eagles, an author of Top 100 Trump Promises Made. Ed, thank you for joining us, man. How are you doing this morning? Doing great, Jamal. Thank you, Aaron. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I, I was listening in with you and interested in your in your take. We, want, we wanted you to take your take right away, yeah, buddy. Absolutely. So fire away. <laughs> well, on Elon Musk, the one the thing Elon Musk proved, and I this is make you guys smile. He proved he's a better businessman than Trump. And here, whoa, <laughs> whoa, can we get that in writing, Ed? <laughs> The, from the man that said 100 promises Trump made? Yeah, no, boy, by the way, it's 100 promises made, promises kept. That was the key thing. He kept the promise. Oh. Anyway, uh, but here's the, here, Elon Musk looked at the field of social media. He said, um, I watched Parler try to start, and the powers that be killed Parler, right? I watched Gab uh, start, and I, and I see that they're getting sort of uh, marginalized in lots of ways. Trump started his own social media outlet, and if you notice the news in the last uh, 24 hours, Two of the senior designers, the actual people that know how to run something that would be a social media platform, left that company, Trump Social, or Truth Social, it's called. Now he's got Devin, who's a great guy, but Devin Nunes is a political guy and a, and a media guy. So the people that know how to start a social media platform know it's almost impossible. Elon Musk looked at it and said, I'm not going to start my own. I'm going to go, as you said, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to make a point. Now, if you can't beat him, buy him is my new saying. <laughs> if you can't beat him, buy him. Yeah, the only problem is I need a little more money to buy him. I mean, you and I, Elon Musk has more than we do. But but here's what I think he's done, which is a, a sort of win-win for him. Either he gets enough of the shareholders to come with him and radically change Twitter. And by the way, Jack Dorsey yesterday tweeted that he may re- sort of regrets how the Internet came about, you know, what came about in it, which makes you wonder, is he talking to Elon Musk as Elon Musk does this? So or if, so if Musk is able to change Twitter dramatically and make it really about free speech, he wins. If he can't, he leaves and, and leaves them sort of uh, know we know who they are, which many of us do know. So the only question I have is how does he do it, right? I think, I think you can't say let back everybody without saying how it's going to work, right? Because you, you can't let really abhorrent things, you know, that might be uh, violent. They got to have some line you, you have to create. And I think the way he'll do it is more transparency. He'll say, if you want to stay, you can pick your uh, algorithm, the one you want to be guided under, and then that that will be like this. And then you can't complain if you're in a totally free zone. But it's going to be interesting to watch. It's exciting. And as you point out, Jamal, it's better today for our Democratic Republic in America to have that conversation happening than it was yesterday. You and I could talk about how the propaganda out of uh, Kiev is is this or the propaganda out of the EU is that that's a different argument than, hey, wait, aren't we supposed to have free speech? And and Musk has pulled us out 
of the weeds and put us up in the clouds. Let's see what happens. Well, like I said, I thought it was interesting that A, you have him tweeting out a poll of, hey, do you think that Twitter's been free speech? And 70-30 in a poll of two, where 2 million people responded, they said, heck no. Then there's talks of him bringing back Donald Trump, Alex Jones, people that were kicked off. And Alex Jones was kind of that canary in the coal mine. And again, like Tucker Carlson said last night, you watch every Democratic operative is going to be finding, you know, anything he said wrong, how he's treated his kids. Is he racist? Is he this? Is he that? Strictly to bring you outside of looking at the issue of free speech at hand and looking at how bad of a person he is. Very much like what Trump, what they did with Trump. Right. I think you're right. Again, I think, again, Elon Musk proving he he knows what every uh, cable uh, executive in the country knows. Trump is good for business. Right. I mean, again, Elon knows that, too. I think he cares about free speech. I think you're right about this, actually, Baron, that he's uh, Elon Musk may be flying closer to the sun than he ever has. And, and you know, there this is not a small time. Uh, the pa- Look, the power of the people who are influencing the propaganda, I call it the narrative machine. The narrative machine in this country right now is big tech, big media, and big government. And they work together, and we can transition right to Hunter Biden. They work together to take a narrative, they define the narrative, and with very sophisticated means, you know, algorithms, sure, but neuroscience, more. And they go and they say, this is what it is. It's Russian disinformation, the Hunter Biden laptop. And then a year and a half later, it was verified. But don't focus on that. Uh, Where are the stories on the 51 senior intelligence community officials who signed the letter saying it was Russian disinformation? Those 51, nobody says this. They would have had top secret or higher clearance. They maintain that when they leave because it's a racket. And they let them keep that clearance so that they can go get jobs with media companies and everybody else. Where, where is the coverage? It's gone because the narrative machine says, move on and we're going to frame what the narrative machine is. And let's go look at this shiny object. So I, I, I think Elon Musk, as you say, Farron, has he's put himself in the in the Klieg lights next to the sun. And I he's got courage. I don't know if he's going to survive it, but he's got courage. That's for sure. I want to go to a quick question um, at Brooke from Virginia. She has a comment on Elon Musk that I think we can uh, we can discuss. Brooke from Virginia, what's your comment on Elon Musk? Hey, guys. Good morning. I would. Good morning. So I would definitely like to say that I wholly appreciate what Elon Musk is doing. Like, as far as where I stand, I'm 32 years old, and I grew up in a time where, you know, we didn't have curse words on TV. We didn't have nudity and all that jazz. Like, none of that was happening. And then, you know, fast forward in the future, now we have kids swearing on TV. So all of that is craziness. But with that being said, I'm like, even though we have all of this nonsense on TV, then we turn around and we're supposed to be free. What we're supposed to be able to say what we want, how we want, how we feel. And essentially, that's what we're doing, expressing how we feel. Now that's being censored, like even down to being a YouTuber, like you can't even post or say certain things on YouTube without, Yes. nope, can't do that. Nope, can't do that. Like that's very frustrating. Or to try to post something on Instagram or Facebook and they're like, nope, can't do that. And I'm like, so it's freedom of speech or not? Because that's definitely not how you guys are making this seem. It's definitely frustrating. And then as a small person who can't really do anything, all we can do is just sit here and wait the 21 days because now our accounts are deactivated or inactivated active or whatever, because they're feeling like, okay, well, what you said was um, unnecessary. No. So I wholly appreciate what Elon Musk is doing. I definitely stand behind him. Brooke, are you a first time caller? 
I am. Well, you need to Welcome call back. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. You need to call more often now. I like your style. Thank you so much. Brooke from Virginia. Loved it. Ed, any final thoughts on Elon before we pivot over to Hunter Biden? Oh, only this. Uh, my only concern is sometimes we think we're debating uh, free speech and, and the First Amendment. And we're, we're and in this case, I think we really are. But um, don't forget the power of what's really happening around us, right? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Twitter is important and, and it is a voice, but around us is a whole lot of other, you know, uh, 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 information that is flooded towards us. And, and while I think this could be a crack in the foundation of what I call the narrative machine to have someone like Musk in there, it's, it's a lot bigger problem, right? It's a lot, it's a, and it, it's not just cable news. It's, uh, like I said, big tech broadly. Um, just go do a search engine analysis on what you're seeing in terms of, of uh, you know, of who the heroes are in the world right now. And you say, huh, how does that work? So anyway, I think it's good. And I think here's what Elon Musk has done is created energy around the conversation, which we haven't had in a while. Right. So that's great. Now, now let's let's pivot to uh, Hunter Biden, because the walls are kind of closing in on on this little a little hunty. Um He's a little, he's a grown man. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, we wouldn't L- think little it. Hunty is in, he's in trouble. Um, Hunter Biden is apparently spending his father's presidency living in luxury in Malibu. And so is his taxpayer funded security detail. Now, for those that don't know, when a president leaves the White House, he, along with his children, they get security details for the rest of their life, basically. Gerald Ford's kids, they still get security detail because they're a president's kid. It's just kind of a known thing. Um, Jimmy Carter, 91, building Habitat for Humanity Homes, still has a security detail. Doesn't matter. And his age kids is, will have it for the rest of his life. not a number for these people. Yeah. yeah. But money is a number, though, for this. <laughs> <laughs> the Secret Service detail protecting the president's controversial son has been paying more than $30,000 a month to rent out a swanky Malibu, California mansion for nearly a year. Sources fam- familiar with the matter tell ABC News. Hunter Biden is living in Malibu with his new wife. And when you think about this guy and the amount of money that he's made from just not only Burisma, even more so from China, Ed. And then you have it where the American taxpayer is now paying not only for, you know, all of all of his bad habits, being a crackhead, and then $30,000 a month for a security detail when this guy is under investigation for tax fraud. Ed, I mean, does your blood boil as much as mine does? Well, it, it is. And, and first of all, let's say something like saying about this before we got, I, 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 I go off and, and rant. Um, one is we do want protection for the family of the president while he's president. By the way, I have to quibble with you. I, I checked while you were talking. Uh, the, the Secret Service stops for the children right after they're president. So like, I remember, wait, really? OK, yeah, I, remember, I wasn't sure one way or the other. They, they, they wanted they were so excited that they said Ivanka doesn't have security. You know, the, the media was like so happy to make that point. Yeah. And I, and I remember it was Gerald Ford's son. Who, who told the story, like, literally, they, like, the Secret Service walked off the set. They, they looked at him. Oh, man, then I read the wrong... You said they walked off the set. Say that again. You said Gerald Ford's son, they walked off the set. Explain. No, Gerald Ford's son said it was like a movie he set up. When it was one minute after his dad was no longer president, the Secret Service agent, you know, basically dropped his guard, said it was nice to serve you, and walked out the door. Wow. Because, <laughs> because wow. Then they're, they're, this must have been like a, a wrong, this, this person probably sourced it wrong because Chelsea Clinton still gets hers. Well, let, let, me, let me qualify. There's a, so one thing, one, one, uh, one aspect of that, let me finish one thought. I remember I was in St. Louis once, and uh, Pope John Paul II was visiting, and so 
uh, at the time was Vice President Al Gore was uh, sending him off. And when Al Gore and Bill Clinton was there the day before, when Al Gore and Bill Clinton, when the, when the planes took off and they left, the Secret Service guys, literally, you can see like all the energy go out of them and they like walked away. Like I can picture that in my head. Now, I think something like Hillary, there are uh, there are extenuating circumstances when they have threats and things. And I think probably there may be I don't know the answer on Hill, on uh, Chelsea, but but back to the point on this. So we want to protect our, our, our the children of presidents so that they're not kidnapped and blackmailed and all that. But it gets comical when you have Hunter Biden who moves to Malibu. The corruption here is not the cost of the Secret Service. It's the reason he lives in Malibu and rents a mansion. He has he has tens of millions of dollars in his bank account. Go look at his laptop because he was dealing with China and Ukraine. And now he's in a Malibu and he sets up and he's got a home. He's shameless. He did a, a New York Times magazine or New Yorker interview where he's sitting in his home in Malibu and he's got a garage that's converted into his art studio. Now, remember, Hunter Biden for last year wasn't an artist. Now he's a painter. And when he sells his paintings, they're anonymously purchased for $500,000 a pop. And so what happened is the Secret Service has to get a place next to his mansion that is funded by what I call influence peddling. It's not always illegal, but it's always wrong. And so here he is, and, and it's insane. And you know, there's a point here where it, it, the idea that the media is just now discovering this actually makes me wonder if they've decided they've had enough of Biden. Because this is really, an, or, or they've seen the laptop and they know it's actual corruption, as I haven't seen it. But now, because suddenly in the last five days, we're actually getting some coverage of the verified laptop, the exchanges. You know, there's an email where uh, obviously Joe Biden, we've now identified one of his Gmail accounts. There's an exchange where a, a, a photographer sends a photograph and says, here's your wife and your granddaughter in uh, Arizona or somewhere. And it's to a Gmail account. And he calls him, sir. And that was, I had a guy on my radio show and he told me that's the name that he used. I forget the name now. But my point is they're covering this. And, and what we need to get to now is what is the reality of Hunter Biden's corruption? And I don't know if we're ever going to get that, but we're getting more attention. That's the interesting part to me. I mean, like, and my let's thing not forget was, too, really quick. Ashley Biden is also set to have her wedding at the White House. And that, oh, that's not supposed to happen. We're all paying for that, folks. Yeah, that's definitely not it. supposed to happen. I, I, I mean, that's the interesting part. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I noticed that myself. Initially, if you remember, they wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. And of course, this was during the election, right? Because their thing is, okay, we don't want another Clinton email thing that basically puts Trump in office. So we're just going to pretend like this story doesn't exist. Except now, it seems the floodgates are open. The New York Times is covering it. The Washington Post is covering it. And... Is this where Biden has gotten so low in the polling and everything else where he is just fair game? And for that matter, what does it mean for the Republicans? I'm sorry, his granddaughter, Naomi, his granddaughter, Naomi, is going to have her wedding at the White House. Ah, even same, worse yeah, than the same daughter. Difference. Right, that's not even his daughter. That's not even the daughter. I guess my thing is, what does this mean for the Republicans? Is this something that they are basically, meaning are they chomping at the bit for Hunter with this idea that they're going to transfer this over to Biden, making it a point of saying, hey, if Hunter is corrupt, by definition, his dad is probably also um, implied. You had the chief of staff, Ron Klain. He was asked by George Stephanopoulos, you mean to tell me that Joe Biden's brother and son have nothing to do with this? And he goes, nope, nothing. He doesn't know any of exactly. this. Exactly. Exactly. The chief of staff. Uh, but, but I mean, but what we're seeing, and again, I hope it becomes instructive for uh, and, and, and uh, constructive for the country. What we're seeing is what I, I described at the beginning. I call it influence peddling. You know, when you're a senator at age 30, um, everybody around you, if you stay in office like you did, becomes really rich. So 
Joe Biden's brother is really rich. Joe Biden's sister was his campaign manager. I told someone, go do the ma- go look at the FEC filings and see how much money she was paid to be his campaign manager for the last 30 years. Because what happens is you put him on the payroll and you pay him. You're a senator for six years. You pay him the whole time you're in office. And so everybody around him starts to influence pedal. And at a certain point, Biden clearly was comfortable with it. Joe Biden. And now the question is only whether it's corruption. And, you know, we're back to Ukraine. If it's true that the the exchanges that were happening at at the time that uh, Joe Biden was demanding changes in the the, uh, prosecution, that's it's either an indication of corruption by Biden, Joe Biden, or his kid was corrupt and his dad was duped. I, I tend to actually think it's his dad was duped, but only in the sense that he allows it to happen. It's like a wink and a nod. And the system is like that. Pick a senior senator. And, and almost every one of them is like that in America. Because why? Because the, ma- the amount of power and money in Washington, D.C. has gotten so big that they just go ahead and do that. So uh, whether the Republicans are chopping at the bit or not, the, the country is looking up and saying, drain that swamp. And let, let me tell you something. Ed, we, we both know, because this plot even thickens even more, because my mother's been texting me, because my mom's like, can you believe that? <laughs> it's Hunter Biden's daughter, Naomi that's getting married at the White House. If this was Donald Trump Jr.'s daughter, imagine what they would Donald say. Donald Trump Jr. was a crackhead, which Trump would never allow. He doesn't even allow his kids to drink. But if this was Donald Trump Jr.'s daughter getting married at the White House, there would be pandemonium, God forbid, draft impeachment papers. I mean, it would be insane. Imagine what would have happened if it was Trump's kid with that laptop. <laughs> Think about that. Like if they would have found Trump's kid and it was like, hey, we have this laptop from Trump's kid with all of this corruption stuff in it that implicates, they would have went. First oh, of wow. all, how many M&Ms? How many M&Ms? Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, but Ed, I want to bring this up because this is literally just breaking. And I want to get your comment because we were talking about Elon Musk before. Breaking news. Elon Musk is joining Twitter's board of directors a day after disclosing that the Tesla CEO took an almost 10% stake in the social media platform. Twitter Inc. said it entered into an agreement with Musk that he will be given a seat on its board. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean, Ed? What does it mean? Well, what it means to me is Jack Dorsey's in on it. Because really, you oh, you're so. right. He said the other day he he regrets he centralizing. It. Yeah, yeah. And if he because if Jack Dorsey, I gotta think Twitter has has so much money they've set up the ways to fight off. You know, this isn't uh, like a, what it was a TWA or Amer- American back in the day or some you know Chrysler where you've got a, a hostile takeover, a hostile board seat. That it strikes me that some or or the response to Elon Musk was such that the Twitter board couldn't do that. But now the question is, what I thought, oh to be a fly on the wall at the first board meeting. Oh, yeah. No, well, what we don't know now is can a board of directors member, can he or she, uh, what can they do? Sometimes <laughs> boards are activists, sometimes they're not. You know, is there another set? Like Zuckerberg has a board, but he actually controls most of the right. stock that controls the board in another way. I, I don't think we know what the legal setup is here, but uh, it sounds like Dorsey's voice, if he's saying, I'll, I'll, I want to change it up too, then things are going to get interesting fast. Well, and here's the thing is I could... Part of me thinks that, you know, if you're in that boardroom and you have like, you know, Sally, Jane and John and Elon Musk isn't getting his way. He's like, hey, John, how many shares do you have here? I'll give you 10 billion. <laughs> right. Give me your shares. And he's like, well, OK. Elon you know, Musk has all the knows? money in the world to buy shares <laughs> yeah. at this point. 
I guess, yeah, I, I'm curious with you on this one, Ed. Like, basically, what does this mean? And we must be able to assert a certain amount of authority in that organization in order to do the free speech stuff. Because they've definitely been, it seems they've been censoring more since Jack Dorsey left. The one thing you know with Musk is it doesn't mean what we think it does. I mean, my point is, he very rarely goes linear like you and I think. And so wh- whether he's coming in, you know, he may, he may disappoint conservatives by saying, you know what, I'm going to make it a, a free speech zone looking like this. I, I remember Jack Dorsey proposed a few years ago that Twitter should adjust its model and allow people to, I think the phrase was mine, but he, he basically said, choose their own algorithm. You can look at the thing, come in and say, I, I think Jack Dorsey wanted change and didn't think he could do it. If he's teamed up with Elon Musk, or at least given his tacit sort of indication, go there. I think Musk will do something, will say something like that. And I think you're right. You guys came onto it. I think the first thing they might do is let some people that were off come back with some way. And, and imagine just simply if Trump came back. Now, the world that the left can't quit Twitter. They're hooked on it. They are. They are, Ed. But you know what, Ed? We're coming up to a hard break. We want to thank you so much for dialing in. Ed Martin, the president of the Phyllis Shafley Eagles and author of Top 100 Trump Promises Made, Promises Kept. Ashley, or Naomi Biden is getting married. On my birthday, November 19th, start buying my gifts now, and we're going to have a wedding special. Ed Martin's going to be on that special <laughs> with us. We're going to dress up in everything. Fault Lines, rumble.com slash Fault Lines. We're back in two minutes. The Naomi Biden wedding special. It's going to happen. <laughs> Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the Kansas University of Kansas men's basketball locker room, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, (laughs) taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. The NCAA championship, Kansas men's basketball, remind you. In the ladies' corner, never ad lib, right? In the ladies' (laughs) corner, (laughs) my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess. Your journalist extraordinaire, American Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, wondering why she's in the locker room, I am your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your last man on the wall, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Yeah, ad-libbing is always treacherous. It's always shaky ground, folks. <laughs> Sometimes you can do it. Sometimes not But so hang on one second. I need to check... November 19th, 2022. What day? It is uh That's a Saturday. That's going to ruin it. It is a Saturday. Oh, so, hang on. <laughs> it's ruined. So Friday, Friday we're going to have the the um what is it? The the wedding party dinner. Yeah. We're going to have it in the morning. We're going to dress up. We're going to have I'm going to have the big hat. You're going to be in a tux. We're going to have the whole shebang. The Naomi wedding uh the day before wedding party. It's going to happen like the Kentucky Derby. Because it's going to be at the White House, right? Exactly. I mean, all so of us gonna, are involved. We're going to go from here and we're going to walk over to the White House. Because they're using the people's house. Yeah. For, their, say, for that wedding. For the wedding. Yeah. We will literally be the wedding crashers. I mean, we should be, I mean, it shouldn't even be a crash at that point. That's our house. Exactly. That's our house. The people's house. Yeah. But. They're having a wedding at our house. Can you imagine? we got to dress up for it. I'm going to have like the all dress, all one colored, the, the big hat, everything. They're going to be like. Mr. President, um, there are two people from Sputnik here. 
dressed to the nines. Completely crazy. Right. <laughs> right. Right. They say they're from Sputnik, but uh, we think they're actually from the mental institution. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's wearing pink chucks and a tux. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> they both look like Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, we're here for the wedding. We're here for the wedding. (laughs) Let's do it. Um, So, yeah. So, we have a special guest coming up at 930. We have the one, the only, the former host of In Question, Manila Chan. Oh, she's joining us. Manila Chan is coming at 930. Great. Manila's awesome. Yeah. She's back Larry, on vacation. That's great. Larry Fine, a drunken Farron will sing Bohemian Rhapsody at the reception. I will be Larry, there for that. I do not have to be drunk to sing that. I will sing it completely sober. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I think the drunk version would be fantastic, No, though. I get off key. And just, <laughs> That'd be great. They're like, oh, God. I thought she was a good singer. Now she's like, oh, I'm Yeah, no. Plus, I don't, it's weird. As you get older, your hangovers get worse and... Yes, that is very true. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of over very it. It's weird. I rarely get hangovers. I, I would get sick in the moment. Like, I, like I, I am, as a drunk, I still am me. Like, I never lose this. Uh-huh. It's like I'm still conscious, I'm still aware, et cetera. I may be a little bit more um, gregarious or a little bit more, I don't know, um, impulse, uh-huh. um, control, that type of stuff. But I usually get sick in the moment. It's usually not the hangover. When I was younger, I used to be hangover. We have, we have in my family, my siblings and I call it the Franzak curse. Yeah. Where, you know, because my father is Polish and Russian, and a little bit of Belarusian, if you like, want to count all the borders and stuff. And my mom is Italian and Irish, and um, I love a mix. <laughs> and, and we say it's the Franzak curse. Like we always say, like <laughs> with my father, you know, we were we were born with a .08 alcohol, and my mother doesn't even drink. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of in the Russian Polish blood, right? Um, but like we we always said, like we'll go out and like we'll have like you know a shot or something, and like we just we just don't feel it until like the very night when we go home, and then we're like, Bam. oh. And we call it the Franzak Kurtz. Like, we just don't feel it when we're out. Yeah. And until maybe, like, later on in the night. And so that's just a point of maybe you should just shouldn't, shouldn't drink. When so I was that's in kind of where I'm Czech at. Republic, I am looking for a chess club in the area. And I see chess pieces on the window. I go to the place. It's a bar. And the guy who's in, in there the is like. Republic. Yeah, it's, it's in a bar, right? He's like, American? Now, he doesn't speak English, but he knows American. They start pouring vodka shot after vodka shot after vodka shot. We were using a little Google thing to trans to communicate. They wanted your money, Jamaro. No, they bought it for free. They were just buying it. Oh, he was wow. buying it for me. Oh, you mean okay? I see. Yeah, he was like, "Oh, American, American, welcome to the, welcome to Czech Republic." And he's buying drink after drink, and I'm like, three or four shots of vodka in, and I'm like, dude, I have to, I'd have to leave, man. This, this ought is to be good. <laughs> yeah, this is intense. And he's still like, I have pictures of the guy. All of us were like hugging and everything else. It was. A great experience. You can't turn them down because from what it's, you remember. Yes, I, I get home, throw up, out of it for the rest of the night. <laughs> I like just waste it. It took everything in me just to get home, just to collapse when I get home. Yeah, just like the slow look. Yeah, oh, like, oh, just must make, it, in. make it, to must door. it to the door. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. But let's get to some headlines, and then we're gonna take your calls after this. 202-521-1320. 202-521-1320. We're going to be taking calls till about 9.30 till we have our beautiful guest, Manila Chan, coming on, uh, talking about all things pop culture, Ukraine, what have you. Um, the plenty we'll, clips also. Yeah, and we'll let Manila kind of take it. But 
and your COVID headlines. Republican and Democratic negotiators forged a deal Monday that will direct $10 billion to pay for vaccines, therapeutics, and domestic COVID health response tools. Senator Mitt Romney says the bill won't cost the American people a single additional dollar. This agreement represents only about half of the $22.5 billion President Joe Biden initially requested and is lower than a $15 billion version hammered out last month. Chinese authorities say the People's Republic witnessed a significant spike in COVID cases after the country imposed a lockdown in the large city of Shanghai. Beijing reports the country saw 16,412 new daily coronavirus cases this week, the most since the pandemic began. In your national news, the jury selection process has begun for Nicholas Cruz. The person behind the mass shooting at Parkland, Parkland's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, more than 120 of the first 160 prospective jurors were dismissed due to their inability to serve from the months of June through September. The jury will determine if Cruz will get life in prison or a sentence of death for murdering 17 people. It looks like Donald Trump's endorsement of Sarah Palin for U.S. Congress has paid dividends for the former governor of Alaska. According to the odds makers at Betfair, Palin's original odds to win the election were seven to one. However, since Trump's endorsement, the former governor's odds have improved four to one. Trump's endorsement made headlines Sunday as the former president raved about Palin and praised the candidate for her previous support. Sacramento police say authorities made their first arrest in connection to the weekend shooting that left six dead and a dozen others injured. 26-year-old Dandre Martin was taken into custody and charged with assault with a firearm, as well as being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. Martin was not arrested for homicide. Kim Yo-jung the, of the Workers' Party of Korea says if South Korea followed through on recent threats of a preemptive strike against the North, Pyongyang would reply with nuclear weapons. Quote, in case South Korea opts for military confrontation with us, our nuclear combat force will inevitably have to carry out its duty, Kim said in a statement. Two referendums may be held in South Ossetia, first on joining Russia, the second on reunification with Russia's North Ossetia. This told by the Republic's president, Anatoly Bibilov, to Sputnik. Bibilov says uh, consultations with Moscow are underway and the referendum could happen after April 10th. The United Kingdom's refusal to hold a UN Security Council meeting requested by Russia on allegations of atrocities in the Ukrainian town of Bucha is unprecedented in UN history, Russian ambassador to the UN, Vasily Nabenzia, says. He added that holding a meeting would not benefit Western delegations and the anti-Russian narrative they promote. Russia has now requested a Security Council meeting today at 3 p.m. Eastern Time to discuss the Bucha allegations. In your tech news, Truth Social Chief Technology Officer Josh Adams and Billy Boozer, head of the product of development, have resigned from their respective roles amid the, the venture's fumbled rollout and uncertain future. A report detailed that Boozer and Adams, described by one individual as the brains behind the app's technology, initially embraced the anti-cancel culture and free speech mission laid out by higher-ups. And after buying 
more than 9.2 shares of Twitter yesterday. Elon Musk now is joining Twitter's board of directors a day after disclosing that the Tesla CEO took up around almost near 10% stakes in the social media platform. Twitter Inc. said it entered into an agreement with Musk that will give the billionaire a seat on its board. In your Earth and Science news, an unknown creature thought to be an alien washed ashore on an Australian beach recently. According to the publication, the weirdly bloated creature whose head has been defleshed and body looks more like a swollen alien washed ashore last week and stirred rumors on social media that this creature was indeed an alien. Russell Bicknell, a marine biologist, however, told Live Science he thinks it's either a kangaroo or a wallaby. So for all the alien gurus out there. Sorry, Jamaro. In your business news, Hungarian energy company MVM is discussing with Russian energy giant Gazprom on the issue of making gas payments in the Russian currency. Russian ambassador to Hungary, Yevgeny Stanislavlov, said in an interview with Sputnik. Oil prices jumped as much as 4%, returning U.S. crude to above 100 bucks per barrel as more Western sanctions planned for Russia, along with news of a hike in Saudi selling prices, helped the market rebound from last week's worst sell-off in two years. And in your WTF news, police in Britain were dealing with a tasty traffic obstruction Monday when a truck lost its load of cookies on the roadway. Police tweeting out, Please bear with us this evening as we try and digest the issue. A lorry load of McVitie's finest have decided to abandon ship, causing a slight obstruction. No reports of injuries from the spilled biscuits, a.k.a. cookies here. Your holidays today, National Deep Dish Pizza Day. Shout out to Lou Malnati's in Chicago, the only deep dish pizza you should eat in Chicago. We're not sponsored, but maybe we could be. First contact day. Celebrate all things Star Trek for this weirdo over here. <laughs> National Caramel or Caramel Day. National Flash Drive Day and Read a Roadmap Day. That's right. Get rid of Google Maps today. See how see how far you get. Today in history, 1994 was Kurt Cobain's death. 1951, the Rosenbergs were sentenced to death for spying for Russia. In 1955, Winston Churchill retired as prime minister. And in 1984, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar broke the NBA all-time scoring record. Those are your headlines for April 5th, 2022. One more headline. One more headline. Oh, jeez, what is it? John Kariaku and Michelle Witte, shout out for this. This came out today. The Sun. We filed a Freedom of Information Act just days after the existence of the shadowy program had been made public. Finally, after more than four years, the Defense Intelligence Agency released more than 1,500 documents. It includes government commissioned scientific reports and letters to the Pentagon regarding the UFO program. The whole includes reports into research on biological effects of UFO sightings on humans, set out categorizations of paranormal experiences and studies into sci-fi style technology. The DIA, Department of Defense spy arm, said, quote, some portions of the documents must be withheld in part due to privacy and confidentiality concerns. But the agency added that the DIA has not withheld any reasonably segregated, non-exempt portions of the records. The bombshell Freedom of Information Act call includes reports on the DIA's research into biological effects of UFO sightings on humans. This includes burns, heart problems, sleep disturbances, and even bizarre occurrences such as apparent abductions and unaccounted for pregnancies. Whoa! <laughs> like, that is extreme. So that's why I'm not sleeping good? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> think about what they're saying for the moment. Like, here's the thing. 
if the government comes out and admits that there are UFOs, okay, fair enough. You did it. You did it. The document came out. They've acknowledged it. You get stuck with a lot of stuff that is in that box that we have no idea what's in that box. And the fact that these documents are talking about abductions and pregnancy, oh, that is like the UFO community does not want to touch that. Well, I just have one question. Do you think these aliens know that Stacey Abrams was declared Empress of the Earth? Yes. Yes, they do. It was do. on the new Star Trek. Yes, they do. <laughs> right. Oh, is this Discovery or is this... Um, it's it's it, from blank state. Discovery Stacey is Abrams horrible. was declared Empress of Earth. Or something on the new Star oh, Trek. Oh, Discovery is horrible. I, I don't it, even call it that Star Trek. On Twitter, he says. Oh, I don't even call it Discovery Abrams. Star Trek. It is so bad. It is so horrific of a series. The last, to be fair, season four was okay, but that is not Star Trek, and they bastardize it by calling it that. They're coming out with Christopher. I'm, I'm just gonna let. Oh, you I'm vent sorry. Here. That's right. You're no, no, out. No, no, you no, don't no. play attention no, no, to Star no, no, Trek. No, 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 no. I'm saying I want you to vent here because it's your day. All right. Discovery is not Star Trek. What Discovery did was basically use identity politics and wrapped it into something that they wanted to call Star Trek. So oftentimes throughout it, you were here, you were seen. And I never understood why they kept saying that. And I realized, oh, that is the LGBT stuff that they've basically grounded and You are seen, what what is it normally? They never say that. It's like they add in commentary from today. Again, I'm a Star Wars girl, so this is all new to me. It's all new to me too, because Star Trek doesn't typically do that. Star Trek is already so that would be very like, lefty. That would be like the Force be with they. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, yes, it's that where it's like where they've added all of this content about um, being seen or being out of the closet and stuff like that. Star Trek is not that. Even this notion of uh, Burnham and having Burnham being in everything. She's not a captain, at least wasn't, and yet every decision went through Burnham. And she was doing stuff. Within the first episode, within the first 15 minutes, she had already attacked the captain of the show. That has never happened on Star Trek. It's so beyond the pale. Um, look, they're coming out with Christopher Pike is going to have a series. And that series is going to be phenomenal. And that is going to be the Star Trek that people expect it. That is going to be the Star Trek that people get. And let me, one last thing before it's, it's a well, Star no, Trek Well, no, because I have another question after this, too. Okay, one last thing. One of the best episodes in Discovery I don't like Discovery under normal circumstances. One of the best episodes, Christopher Pike. Christopher Pike, anybody who watched the original series knows that there's a point where Christopher Pike ends up in a wheelchair with a little butter that says, beep, beep, for yes or no. Mm-hmm. He gets crushed. And so seeing Christopher Pike in his heyday is this kind of real great experience for people to watch. All right. Christopher Pike needs to accomplish an objective. He needs a time crystal. He goes to Kronos. He grabs the crystal and he sees his fate. He falls back. And he sees himself get cut utterly and entirely destroyed and the event that puts him in that wheelchair. The Cleon tells him, if you take it, that is your fate. You're stuck with it. And he's, uh, he's getting himself together. He's like, I'm a Starfleet officer. I'm a Starfleet officer. And the reason he's saying that is because what he needs to do in this particular moment is take that crystal. And as a man, he doesn't necessarily want to do it. But the fact he's an officer extends beyond the fact of him just being a man. He is more than just a man in his conception of things. And so, as a Starfleet officer, he takes that crystal. He accepts his fate, knowing full well that that is going to happen to him. And he does so because he needs to do it to accomplish his objective. That is an amazing story. You should say that, save that for dates. I do. I do. <laughs> right, first thing, how do you think I, I got do. married? I I'll, actually do. How do you think? I was like, you know, one of the best episodes of Discovery. <laughs> or talking about the, um, the, the, the Cisco one where, you know, where he basically gets the Romulus into the war. That Dates love that stuff. No, but I, I do actually have a, a great question, though, because— Last night, and this is so weird. You guys, I think I'm like a prophet or something Uh-oh. because I like watch a documentary and then like I see it all the time now. Yeah. 
Guess like the documentary I watched last night going to bed. Uh, don't, something don't about Shaq. Oh, The Captains. Unacknowledged. Un- oh, and, really? And I've watched, Stephen I've Greer. It, I've watched it a bunch of times, okay? But it's one of my favorite documentaries. Oh, you like it? Oh, I love, I love the UFO okay. stuff. But hang on. So a new one just came out this month featuring Dr. Stephen Greer again right. called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Yes. What a lot of people don't know about me is when I lived in El Paso, Texas, um, a lot of weird stuff happens out in the Southwest. Yes. And when I watched Unacknowledged, which is where I first saw it out there, I had a friend that was super into aliens out there. Yeah. And you have Los Alamos, yes. which is oh, White yes. Sands, which is not too far from El Paso. Oh, yeah. And I went and, and you know, rode around because it is really right sand. It's super cool. But aliens are like a big thing oh, out yeah. there. And people always talk about seeing stuff out there. Uh-huh. I personally never have, but that's when I originally started getting in aliens when I moved out there. You should hear John. John's oh, I'm, I'm UFO sure he's story. got stories. But so Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind just came out this month. Uh-huh. Documentary talking about... Um, uh, a documentary featuring Stephen Greer, a possible well, alien visitation disclosure movement, has a tantalizing sightings, but reveals that ET obsession is now the mothership of a conspiracy theory yes. and how he brings in more and more people who had these problems sleeping, like heart murmurs uh-huh. and um, people, you know, I don't think there's anything pregnant, but um, like in the report, yeah. but it's about human biological effects. Yeah. So Greer takes it to a whole nother level. And there's. Greer's reputation in the UFO community is complicated. I mean, Greer— I remember make, talking about this with you, too. Yeah, Greer makes little... this argument where he's like, there are no bad aliens. And people immediately are like, how do you know that? <laughs> like, there's somebody like, how do you know that? And even this notion of him trying to make contact. They go out for these contact motion things where they're this kind of directed thought with this idea of telepathic communication and everything else. Mm-hmm. But the idea of trying to draw that stuff to them. And so Greer does this across the United States, the area that you were talking about, like White Sands. They go out to yeah, California somewhere. Yeah, in Colorado he goes out yeah, to a Colorado lot. Yeah, Colorado is another mm-hmm. place. Because the altitude. Yeah. And so Greer's point is he believes that all of this stuff that's taking place from the Pentagon releasing this stuff is in order to get almost like a psyop. That's his thought. That they're trying to create a context for a larger world conflict. Um, Greer hasn't put anything out there to back that up per se, even though you can't necessarily, I guess, entirely dismiss him. Um, but yeah, he's a complicated UFO figure. He's right. very complicated. I mean, he even goes into like animatronic beings going after to get people. It's way out there. That I didn't get that far. But what I did find interesting, though, and just because I have my own family and my own dad, who's a, a physician, mm-hmm. um, the fact that he was an ER doctor, yeah. I, th- I I tend to in Virginia actually. often, you know, uh, I thought he was in North Carolina. Well, he. Used to practice in Virginia. I don't know where he is now. Okay. But yeah, now he he's in North Carolina, Virginia. I think. But who knows? It, this unacknowledged came out in what, 2018? Yeah, it was a while. Yeah. yeah. It was a huge um, hit, believe it or not. Yeah. No, but I mean, I, I just think that sometimes doctors, they can see things, you know, for example, like I even remember having talks with my father of, you know, my dad grew up very religious in a Polish-Russian family, um, very Catholic in Chicago, where, you know, he even listens to the masses in Latin and likes to do that once a year. And my whole family's are like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah. And you have to wear the veil and everything. Um, but then being a doctor, there is this whole dichotomy of, Okay, yes, I believe in a higher power, but at the same time, science is science and you know, it's a whole difference. They don't contradict. No, but at the same time, for example, and I just again, like I've I've had numbers of talks with him on this, you know, because he was a neurosurgeon and he, there was times he was working on, you know, he was out of 10 different hospitals and when he was a young doctor, he was having to be in the ER and somebody gets shot and and, and from from the head up 
And, you know, you have the parents, oh, Johnny's a fighter. Johnny's a fighter. He's going to make it through. I've been praying Johnny's a fighter. And my dad's like, Johnny's not making it. Johnny's not making it. You know, so that's that's one of the things where I think with doctors, they have to balance that. But I feel like doctors can do, a, most doctors that I've met, you know, who know, who's to say about the new ones coming up, but they have a good, even scientists, engineers, they can balance that fact versus, I don't want to say fiction, but, you know. You and I have... You know what I mean? Different takes on doctors just because your dad was a doctor and you're closer to him. And my experience with doctors were not that positive. Well, a lot of times, as my father used to say, they're, they're going to tell you the worst. So, you know, they're they're not, you know, going to be, yeah, you know, you got six months to live, but you, know, you could probably make it to, <laughs> right. to, to a year. You know, doctors are going to tell you scientifically the books look like yeah, six months. Exactly. You know, and, and they're... They give you their take. They yeah. well, well, not even that. They have to give you the truth. You want some doctor telling you it's a year and then it's only going to be three months, you know? But one thing that my father, because my father actually was the one that broke to my mom's mom when she had pancreatic cancer. He was in on the surgery and everything. And he said, here's the difference between me and you. And I thought this was so profound. He was like, you, they say you have six months to live. She lived for 15, by the way. He said, I could go out and walk across the street and get hit by a truck. And then there's the end of me. You don't know. And that's the thing is, is they give you a time frame. But a lot of times, even my mom has always said, who's a nurse, she says, doctors diagnose, nurses cure, mind you, for all the nurses out there. Um, but she has said, they give you this time frame. But again, she's even said, you know, your father didn't really like giving time frames because then people are like, doctor, it's been six months. And how am I not know? dead? Yeah. You know, he can so, only give you like, based on what I know, et cetera, et cetera, this is what it looks like. But that's, there's a certain amount of hubris with that, which right. I totally understand why he doesn't want to. Do I, I will say though, I was blessed. I won the parent lottery, and you know, they their their thoughts on medicine and all that. I, I don't know what's going to happen with me when they go. I don't even want to think about it. But, but we have callers. We, have we callers. do have callers. And they're probably like, "Shut up, Karen." <laughs> so let's go to David, <laughs> South Carolina. David, what's going on, my man? What's the topic for today? I was, I was like, shut up, Farron, and uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it. It's fine. I wanted to say. First of all, Jamal, I wanted to say the chat was on your side. <laughs> it is totally okay to shake your head. It's totally natural to do in conversation. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, what's the other topic? To be fair, I just said why I was uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Just because I've been Yeah, she didn't take face. a hit. She just said she was uncomfortable with it. Oh, Farron, I totally understand the re- I totally understand the reasoning. Now, I told you the Europeans are far gone on this. Your your person was far gone. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He was far going on the on the NATO thing. Uh, but look, I appreciate like I appreciate that conversation. Believe it or not, like I enjoy. Believe it or not, I enjoy those conversations because to me, it's like go please. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, I wish that y'all would have kind of like butted in there in terms of there are some things which are like objectively false, and I know y'all you you want to be respectful and all that, and let your guests talk. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the, the, the premise was just completely off, like you said. So, it, it, Well, the NATO thing just didn't make sense. It's like Europe tried to bring Russia in by expanding NATO. It's like, what? Say that again? It's like, why do you think that? And to say that the, and to say that the U.S. isn't involved in Ukraine and con- pulling the strings in Ukraine is... Well, you heard me repeat that, right? It's like, what? Well, yeah, that is like, okay, <laughs> like, okay, you lost me, buddy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, what? I was trying to help you out, but now you just lost me. It's like they literally knocked over the government. Zelensky was a puppet. I mean, it's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zelensky is his own man. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, that was just um, very interesting to hear. And I know that's, you know, that's the majority of people in the West. That I mean, that's what the media narrative is. So, of course, people and also, you know, the State Department narrative, the, the ministries of defense, whatever, you know, whatever it is. That, that's why I appreciate him coming on. I mean, we've been trying to get opposition to come on for a while now to have the conversation like that. And we didn't know that where he was on this. Oftentimes, like I know sometimes we bring people on. Oftentimes, this was one of those situations where we've tried to get various people who would take opposition um, on this very specific issue to have that conversation. Because in our heads, that's the way you have a legitimate conversation for people to decide where they fall on a particular issue. You elucidate it. This is their position. This is my position. You make the choice. I enjoyed it personally. Yeah, I wish I wish y'all would have gotten your position out more. But I, I understand, you know, time constraints. And then also, I I'm kind of in, uncomfortable about the Elon Musk situation. You know, like we say, corporatism is, you know, kind of leads into fascism. So I th- I think in this case, it's good that he, you know, got a good stake, and hopefully, it'll do some good in terms of free speech stuff. But it, it kind of uh, put all our eggs in the Elon Musk basket, kind of. It, it doesn't sit right with me. Because I feel him on that one, right? I don't like this notion of it a is. billionaire coming to the rescue. It is. And I've often said, you know, you have that quote by basically Mr. Fascism himself, um, Benito Mussolini, who said, fascism, another name is corporatism. So I totally understand what you're saying. However, I say, let's just see what happens. <laughs> right. Let's just see. We're stuck with it anyway, right? If Donald Trump comes back on Twitter, if Alex Jones come back comes back on Twitter... I say, let's see, let's let's hear him out. Let's see what happens. And by the way, he may have an ideological. He's only got ten percent. And he may have an ideological position for free speech, which mm-hmm. again, I accept. Yeah, I accept. Um, I say we see what happens. David, but- thank you, my man. I appreciate the call. Alex in Mexico. Alex, what's going on? Uh, sir, I would like to make three points. What I think is going on is that Trump uh, fractured the intelligence community. And there are factions that uh, are trying to do a lot of things at once. So the people who is trying to get uh, our uh, Ukraine-Russia succeeded, but uh, they are not looking at the people with uh, Saudi Arabia, China, and all that. Mm -hmm. So it's a cluster. You say it's a cluster? (laughs) It is a cluster. I agree with you on that point. Um, Thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. Did you have one more point, Alex? Yeah, uh, microwave cameras. When you put your microwave, uh, uh, your microwave oven, uh-huh. uh, do you remember uh, this uh, girl, Betsy uh, Davos Sevit? Mm-mm. I don't think so. But keep going, though. Uh, on the Trump campaign, uh, at the beginning of uh, when Trump was elected, she said it. And uh, I don't know if you heard about the. Uh, microwave imaging. I mean, radar imaging. Oh, you mean for the UFO stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean when the people were, um, basically, the new technology was picking up aircraft. Um, and, you know, people were like, hey, we're starting to see stuff. And you had those pilots coming out basically saying, we've been picking up all of these things on our radar and stuff like that. Is that what you mean? No, I mean, like, for uh, terrain and stuff, they did with uh, radar. Oh, are you talking about when he, when he was talking about how he can mani- manipulate the weather? Uh, for weather and all that, you oh, I see. get messages from uh, radar. Did you know that? Uh, probably you've, you've heard that, right? I remember him talking about it, but I remember that was very early on in his presidency. And honestly, that feels like a decade ago. Yeah, it feels like forever. <laughs> yeah, it does. But honestly, Biden has only been in, what, a year? It feels like it's been um, I know, so right? long. Um, but look, um, Alex, thank you, my man. I appreciate the Gracias, call. Gracias, señor. Mucho. Thank you for the second call. We have Manila Chan coming up. 
You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Baron Franzak. I'm coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And we have a litany of topics that we can hit with our next guest. She is one of my favorite people on this channel, or that um, from the standpoint of a guest and a regular guest. We're joined with Manila Chan. She's a veteran news anchor and host of RT America's daily news program, or at the very least was, in question. Manila, welcome back to the show. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, you two. Uh, it's bright and early here in sunny Southern California. You're in Cali. Okay, fair enough. I, don't th- I thought you were back in D.C., so you're still on vacation. I, uh, we call it vacation, sure. I mean, this is, this is home for me, right? Like, this is me visiting family, running errands, you know, mostly running errands for everybody. So it's not too much of a vacation, but I'm in sunny Southern California. I can't complain. Fair enough. Let me ask you this. Are you a Star Trek person? And we were um, having the conversation about Star Trek in the beginning um, before it started, not to mention the UFO stuff. But today is supposed to be Star Trek Day. Is that something that you grew up watching or you weren't a big fan of it? It is, isn't it? Is it, is it Star Trek Day? Is it? No, it's not. It is. It's, let me see. I, I even read the headline. I, I even have my Star Trek shirt on. It's First Contact Day. Celebration of all things Star Trek. You had me for a second. I'm more Star Wars. Ah. Me too, baby. May the force be with you. <laughs> There's only one return, and it's of the Jedi. <laughs> okay, well, let's skip that topic. <laughs> well, I, I was, there's an aspirational aspect of Star Trek. That's all. That I was going to get into this notion of the world coming together and everything else and getting past all of this stuff. But let's, let's skip that part. How are you doing? Let's start off with that part first. Um, we haven't spoken since, I don't think we've spoken since RT closed. Yeah. Um, how are you doing so far? I'm um, dealing with all of that per se. I might as well get your take on it before we start. Sweet, right? Filling in for um, Lee Stranahan. Um, I ran away to California because, you know, what else does a girl do? I was going to ask you, how is it out there? Are, are the tents coming closer and inching towards you? Let me first say that, oh my gosh, upon landing at LAX, you can see the the gas prices when you're flying in because, you know, LAX is really just buried in the middle of the city. What are the gas prices there, by the way? Holy smokes. When you're by LAX, you know how everything is more expensive around an airport? Well, we, we are looking at like $7 a gallon for 87 gas around LAX and all the way up to like $8 and some change for the premium gas. And it, it's only slightly better when you travel away into the suburbs. But, I mean, that's where I am. But holy smokes, we are talking $6 out in the suburbs for 87 regular gas. I mean, this is, it is nuts out here. I have friends, and they, they drive, you know, an SUV because they have several kids. And it's costing them 
like $200 to fill up the tank. That is insane. Got to pay for our values, Manila. That's what Jin Saki said. We got to pay for our values. I mean, keep in mind the reason and the inflation and everything else, all of that stuff is just basically being made worse by the geopolitical situation. Um, you cover geopolitics. Do you have a commentary on that before we, I guess I said we get started, but we already started, um, on the situations that are basically taking place, whether it's Bucha, whether it's the events on the ground in Ukraine, whether it's the Western take on it, meaning Europe um, shooting itself in the face in order to show its allegiance to the United States on this front. I mean, however bad you get in it, it's worse in Europe. What are your thoughts? Gosh, I just, on all of that, I think first and foremost, I know it's going to sound like I'm some isolationist or something, but to some degree, when you, when you start saying you're, you're going to inflate the DOD budget to the biggest it has ever been in U.S. history, $813 billion, right? That's when, when, when Trump took us up to about 749-ish um, upon leaving office, look, Oh my gosh, the left was aghast. We couldn't believe he was, you know, this this GOP hawk, this Republican. How dare he throw so much more money at this inflated, bloated DOD budget? And here we are, almost fifty thousand dollars, fifty sorry, fifty billion dollars higher than where President Trump when he left office. And all that money, I look around in places here like California, where the prices for everything are incredibly high. We're talking gas prices at an all-time, all-time high. Uh, we're talking food prices also at an all-time high. You can't get a cheeseburger here, even at McDonald's, for less than $6 out here. Um, I don't know how, how the president could expand the DOD budget and line the pockets of his friends at Boeing, at Raytheon, at all these other defense contractors. Meanwhile, every day, Americans are having a hard time keeping gas in the tank and food on the table. And literally tent cities everywhere across my hometown. You can't go to even the suburbs to get away from these tent cities. And these are, uh, these are Americans. These are our neighbors, somebody's brothers, sisters, uncles. This is, this is our people. We are not taking care of our own people. Instead, we're calling this, quote-unquote, aid that we are sending to Ukraine. Meanwhile, that $16, $17 billion that we're sending to Ukraine in one fell swoop, and under that budget amount, you could literally wipe out homelessness in one fell swoop across this country. And instead, President Biden is choosing to expand the DOD budget, line his friend's pockets, and let millions of Americans, scores of Americans across this country teetering on the edge or those already on it suffer in silence. And nobody is talking about that. Instead, everybody's waving their yellow and gold flag. Oh, I'm doing something good by being a social media activist. But what are you really doing? What are you really doing? What you're actually doing is supporting the DOD and lining the, the pockets of these war hawks across this country and telling them it's okay to spend our hard-earned tax dollars on a country that has no actual bearing on the national security of this country. So let me just complain about that because I'm feeling the prices here. Um, I never thought I'd say I'd go back to D.C. and say, oh, I can save some money. But that's actually what's happening. It's a pretty bad, bad place to be at when you're like, oh, D.C. is cheaper than L.A. It's 
incredible what you see out here and see and and you look on the news and you see where our money is being spent. It is incredible when you see the human suffering firsthand. And it's interesting because they came out um, uh, days ago a report talking about the number of homeless people in the state of California alone. And um, one of the one of the shows that I watch on the weekends, it's called Beauty and the Boomer. They're up in Washington State around Seattle, but they were talking about how there's approximately about 160,000 homeless people in um, in Washington State alone. And one of the girls on there, Chanda, she was saying how she was actually one of those volunteers that went out and tried to find these homeless people and find out how long they've been homeless and doing these volunteer, you know, kind of homeless walks and talking to these people and figuring out, you know, the, the statistics. And that California, it's which is a state obviously much bigger than Washington State, they're estimating around 250,000 people that are homeless. And if you think about how many people, that's like basically Scottsdale, Arizona, a Reno, Nevada, a Buffalo, New York, a Fort Wayne, Indiana, that like that's around that size of people, Toledo, Ohio, an entire city homeless. And you have now Manila coming out of Los Angeles. And I'm sure you've probably heard this because it's it's kind of raising some contention with some, mainly with Republicans. You also had Andrew Yang talking about this universal basic income. Well, Los Angeles is going to test it out. Los Angeles, they say, is going to pay a thousand residents picked at random to receive $36,000 over the next three years in a new trial program, and that households need to learn less than $96,000 and not receive any government handouts. Dozens of residents lined up in South LA to apply for this Breathe LA County's Guaranteed Income Program. It's gonna, again, 1,000 bucks a month to 1,000 Los Angeles residences or residents. Any word on this and how people in L.A. are taking it? Because you have Orange County there that I know back in the day, it was always Orange County and then DuPage County where I grew up that were like the two most red counties in the country back in like the 80s, 90s and early 2000s. They're saying they're seeing shifts go back that way again to what it was in the early 2000s. Any word on this and how people are feeling about it? Orange County, Sarah, is actually where I'm staying with family. Um, hey, girl. <laughs> yeah, I had to drive through all of L.A. County. And let me tell you, it was like you entered the twilight zone or something when you, when you or at least you're exiting the twilight zone when you're leaving the L.A. County uh, line because it's, it's literally one side of the line you see graffiti and tent cities everywhere and, you know, just a lot of, a lot of stuff you see in movies, right? And you, it's like you cross over the county line into Orange County and suddenly it's sunny and bright and there's hardly any junk or graffiti on the, on the walls. The freeways are clean. There's no potholes. I'm not saying it's a utopia, but you can clearly see the delineation between a far left government newly installed, left-leaning government on the left side, people like George Gascon, the DA over there. And then out here where the sheriffs are cracking down, they're, I mean, they're not having any of that stuff, right? So out here, in the last couple of weeks, you're not hearing any talk about um, the UBI or whatever. In California, they were talking, or sorry, in Los Angeles, they were talking about doing that UBI um, for the last several 
couple of years, I would say, because they were modeling this after, as you mentioned, a couple of other cities, um, more in the Northwest corridor, um, cities in, in Oregon, cities in Washington state on a much smaller scale. Angelinos, for obvious reasons, they're going to line up for this lottery. But this, the bar being set at over $90,000 when the median household income across this country for a family of four is hovering at about fifty or 60000 that is insane. That you're going to, like, what if somebody, one, two, 20 people in, in Los Angeles who earn $85,000, $90,000 a year, if they, they qualify? Like, are you kidding me? You're not starving. You're making $90,000 a year. You're not starving. Um, so that's number one is a little bit ridiculous. But number two, there are, I have seen um, some limited data so far in the short period of time that we have talked about UBI, um, at least on a, on a mass scale in this country, UBI has actually changed the lives of a lot of people. But these aren't people making $90,000, Merit. These are people making on the verge, right, that are, that are $30,000, $50,000 at the most. Now, other cities um, on, in the Northwest Corridor <clears throat> are earning. So this $90,000 range, I find a little odd that it would make the bar so high. I wonder if it's just because it's in California and it's so expensive to live in California. Like, is that what it is? Like the real estate and everything else? Like you made the point about the gas, food, all of those things just seem to be monstrously expensive in comparison to somewhere like Virginia um, or, you know, or even D.C. So is it just the $90,000 doesn't go as far in California as opposed to, let's say, being on the East Coast? Uh, yes and no. I, I see the point of that, that, you know, the cost of living out here is so much higher. Um, but I also think the, the politicians in charge of Los Angeles in particular are so out of touch because they're going to their fancy restaurants all through the pandemic. They think, they think it's normal to pay $40 salad think it's normal to go buy a $200 sweatshirt or a $75 t-shirt. They think that's normal. So I think a lot of the bar is set because they're, they're out of touch with their constituency because most Angelinos are not earning, they're not very far off from what people uh, across the country as a median household income are earning. People are hustling hard out here, 50, 60 grand for a family of four. That is actually the, the normal median out here as well. So for them to set the bar so high, I think that just kind of lends itself to showing you how out of touch the politicians are in Los Angeles, because these are the same people that are telling everyone, oh, the gas prices are high. So you should just go buy a new Tesla. (laughs) Yeah, which I meant to say this. I don't know if I ever said this on the show before that AOC and I live in the same building. I think you have. I think I have. Yeah. And either way, I saw it last week when Jamarl dropped me off after work and um, rolls out in a new Tesla. AOC, that's where our, oh yeah, I remember saying this. Green I remember deal. yelling about this. <laughs> right. I was like, that's where our tax money's going. Um, but Manila, when we're talking homeless, we're talking prices, especially in LA, I want to touch base because you never got a chance to put it out there and you were working so hard on it because Manila's office was like right next door to mine. Yeah. Um, talking about mental institutions in the United States and how one by one, they were closing down and how much of these homeless people come from these institutions because a lot of these, it's not just, you know, homeless families, even though we're seeing more and more and more of that, 
But a lot of it, though, has to do with what's happening to mental institutions across the country. Please tell us your what would have been your report. Oh, gosh. Excuse me. Yeah, you're right. I was working on a special um, about the, the mass closures of mental institutions and how that relates to homelessness across this country. Now, I know what people are thinking, like, oh, you hear the term mental institution, you're thinking padded rooms and green walls and, you know, the movie Girl Interrupted that really uh, made Angelina Jolie the breakthrough actress um, that kind of took over Winona Ryder would-be comeback. Well, yes, America does have a dark, ugly history with um, mental institutions, but that was that was just the prevailing orthodoxy at the time because neurosciences weren't where they were at today. Obviously, there there are leaps and jumps that that whole the medical industry on the psychiatric side have really gone through in the last fifty years over the you know the, the end of the twentieth century. So, with the mass closures and the defunding of all of those state-run institutions that would otherwise home, be homes to, to a lot of these homeless people that you are seeing that are severely schizophrenic, severely paranoid. We're not talking people that have that are uh, on the streets because of lifestyle choices. Yes, a lot of people are, and, and drug dependency is a, a mental uh, disorder or disability to some degree, but those are lifestyle choices. We're talking about people who are some that are criminally insane, people that are schizophrenic, the people that you hear, you know, um, talking to themselves kind of in their own world. And by the way, we should destigmatize that, that you see somebody talking to themselves. They're not likely to actually harm you. They're in their own world. They are talking to the, whatever voices they're hearing. They're not the ones to worry about that. Oh, that homeless lady, that homeless guy is going to rob you. No, they're busy talking to the voices that they're hearing. They're not going to harm you. It's the one with the shifty eyes that's quiet and watching you get out of your car. Those are the people you watch for. And it's not usually the homeless people. It's usually, uh, you know, some punk on the street. But anyway, I digress. The The whole evolution of, of closing, I mean, at one point, America had um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of beds within either mental institutions or institutional wards of hospitals. Today, today we are talking about some 30,000 beds across the entire country. Okay, we went from uh, the early you know, 1950s or so, we're talking about 2 million beds or so across this country. And today, in the span of one, you know, one boomer's lifetime, you're looking at 30,000 across this country. What happens to the people that are committing crimes and they have no place to go? This thing goes um, down the chain. It's not just um, mentally ill people that you know, need to be locked away for their own safety or for the safety of others. We're talking about people that are having mental breaks that are also going to be mistreated. When you throw them in the wrong place, you throw them, you make them incarcerated when they're mentally ill. They actually become victims of crimes themselves when they're in prison. Um, the police, uh, you know, some of the bad apples or, or the police that are underfunded and not meant to take care of the mentally ill, they, they're at their wit's end of how to take care of these people. So, you know, that you find police brutality there. 
and then they get thrown behind bars and then you find them being abused by other inmates. Um, you find other crimes being tacked onto them by judges because that's the only way to keep um, these people behind bars and off the streets. So all the way down the chain, when you look at somebody that's mentally ill in America today versus somebody that was mentally ill in the 1960s, not everybody's getting a lobotomy like like uh, Kennedy sister, the secret Kennedy sister, right? Although that was a thing back then. But what we're doing today is basically criminalizing mental illness because there's no place to take them. The state of Virginia, where I actually reside, Ralph Northam on his way out, Ralph Northam, the Democrat governor who's supposed to care about, you know, uh, social issues and all this left and whatever stuff that he was he was uh, running on a few years back. We had five mental institutions state run across um, the state of Virginia when he entered office. He quietly during the last part of 2021, he closed. Sorry, there was eight of them. He closed five. There were eight across the state. He closed five. There were only three left across the state of Virginia. So a police officer arresting somebody committing a crime that has a mental illness, maybe having a mental break in, let's say, Fairfax, which is Fairfax County, um, one of the wealthiest counties in the country, they're going to have to spend at least three hours in each direction with two police officers to escort the mentally ill person to the nearest facility, which is over three hours away, way out in the countryside of Virginia. So you're taking now two cops off the street to just to transport one person who shouldn't be behind bars because of their mental illness. I mean, it's worse than that. How much money? Yeah, that's worse than that. I mean, like, just the fact that those facilities aren't there in general. Where do you put those people? Was there a, a reason as to why the governor shut them down? Plain and simple. Defunding and reallocating where that money goes. And so where was it allocated to? Do they have those records? No, I haven't gotten as far as the FOIA request for all of that yet. But I have a feeling it's to a lot of these programs in schools um, that are, I think, a lot of parents found questionable. Some of it was going to PPE. And, you know, and, and those are, those some, there are some worthy causes I get that, you know, a lot of schools are run down in the state and they need to fix ventilation, especially during, you know, the COVID era. Yeah, but you shouldn't take it from a vital resource or a vital need in order to do it. I mean, because otherwise you create another problem. Where do those people go? And to your point, exactly. jail. I mean, like for all intents and purposes, you have cops doing a job that cops shouldn't be doing. I mean, those homes should have been open. Um, Manila, that's a man. That's a great report. I really wish you could have had given that report. Um, there's one so close, so close. Yeah, so close. There's one other thing I want to get to. Um, so, and I guess there are two stories. This just came out. Ivanka Trump, the daughter of senior White House advisor, former President Donald Trump, is set to testify before the January 6th committee on Tuesday. Three sources tell NBC. It is not immediately clear whether Ivanka Trump is expected testimony would happen in person or virtually. And so we will see what goes on with that one. There's another story out with Cuomo. Governor Andrew Cuomo, going from one governor to another, sued New York Ethics Commission on Friday, contending that its effort to force him to turn over the proceeds of the 5.1 million book deal were a violation of his constitutional rights. Now, keep in mind, remember what happened. Andrew Cuomo um, is killing grandmas with his policies on COVID. 
And while he's killing these grandmas, he's going out to the public and acting as if I am the adult in the room while behind the scenes dropping the numbers, meaning hiding the number of people that were basically dying under his watch. Well, as he was doing this, he got an Emmy for this. He wrote a book talking about how I'm the adult in the room on this. And And PSA, Italians, we do not hug and kiss you on the mouth. Okay? That's what his thing. I do it because I'm Italian. That's what we do. <laughs> we right. hug each other and we try to make out with you. PSA, half Italian, we do not Correct. do that. He couldn't okay? keep his hands to himself. That's the other one. Yes. He kept groping women, um, party situations and all yeah. this other stuff. And so their thing is like, dude, you got all of these people killed with COVID and you were lying about it. And on top of lying about it, you acted as if you were successful. Well, you wrote a book on the premise that you were successful. You were not. Not to mention using government resources in order to do that book. What are and your thoughts on this? potentially running again. Yeah, yeah. And there's that part, trying to get back into politics. Amazing. That's the whole reason. That's the whole reason that Cuomo had stepped down versus being forced out amid that ethics investigation. Because if he were to have been forced out, it would have barred him from running again. At least those are the, the rules in New York State. So first, let me say gross. <laughs> And maybe maybe it's a little too soon, and maybe I'm going to sound harsh, but it was bad enough that we were burying grandma, but now you're we find out you were burying the numbers too. So more people should be outraged over those local state politics there, and that guy should be completely barred from doing any sort of public job whatsoever. And uh, his what was it? His Grammy or Emmy that he won? Yeah, he got an Emmy. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And shout out to Holly in the chat who said, hey, remember, he's probably going to run again. But remember, you remember in the very beginning of COVID every day, we don't know what COVID is going to happen. <laughs> we're going to we're going to bring in the hospitals. We got the PPEs every day. Even my sister was in New York at the time and she was like every day I turned it on to see what was happening. And he was very transparent like that. But remember, with Trump. This is this is America's president. This is the true American president. And he would they had were so quick to put him up on this pedestal. And then all the emperor's clothes came off. Okay. <laughs> Say this. First of all, the the um Screen Actors Guild was literally com- considering taking Will Smith's newly won Oscar away from him for the slap heard around the world. Yet we find out Andrew Cuomo led to the death of thousands of old people in New York State. And he's still shining and polishing his freaking Emmy over there, uh, planning his comeback. So, uh, hello, Awards Guild people. Get off your high horse and figure out what to do about that and rescind that award because it was ill-gotten gold. Um, And secondly, just... This guy, with no political backlash against him, investigation went no, supposedly nowhere. We know what they found. They're just burying the information. We're refusing to press charges against this guy. This guy is a sexual predator. You want to put him in the Capitol office in Albany? Like, get out of here, guys. People, this, this, again, shows you the political elite class and how out of touch they are with reality and the important things. These are somebody's daughters. Mm-hmm. had his hand up their shirt. What if that was your sister? What if that was your your aunt? Manila, we're going to have to cut in. Um, but look, agree. And we cannot forget Brother Fredo. Brother Chris, Fredo. Chris, <laughs> helping him out on that media drive. 
You know, hey, buddy, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, you come on, I'll do a Q-tip up your nose, and we'll, do, we'll have some, come on, we'll have some dinner, have some laughs, you know, and then don't forget to call mom. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. Manila, thank you very much. Love Manila, you, Manila is a veteran news anchor and former host of RT's America Daily um, News Program in Question, one of my favorite shows. I want to thank all of our engineers, producers. I want to thank our my co-host, Baron Franzak. My name is Jamal Thomas. You guys have a phenomenally awesome great day. I'll see you in the morning. Thanks so much, guys. And as always, may the good news be yours. Fault lines. 